0: Welcome to Hack Stack Level 4. To get the most out of this show, please listen to the basic training of the first three levels, starting with episode number one. For those of you that have made it through all levels, congratulations! You are now at the pinnacle of understanding, the top block on the stack. So let's talk about the meaning of life. Here's your host, Coz. We must know it. All right. The answer to the ultimate question
1: of life, the universe, and everything is
0: forty-two. Forty-two.
2: Uh, yes. That is from the Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy, right? There There you go. That was the big payoff. What's the uh, meaning of life? Answer is 42. Well, obviously, that's not the answer. That's kind of funny. Um, For you philosophy nerds out there, that is called a category error. And that's when you mistakenly assign a quality or action or character to something that you can't actually assign to that thing. So questions like, how much does love weigh? What is the color of courage? And even, can God create a rock so big that he can't lift it? These are all category errors. Well, why is that last one a category error? Well, how big of a rock would it have to be uh, in order for God not to lift that rock? Well, it would have to be infinitely big. And rocks, by definition, are a finite thing with an end. So you're basically saying... It would have to be an infinitely finite thing, which is which is nonsensical. But anyway, enough on the category airs. Um, we might actually come back to that in just a little bit. But there you go. From Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy, the meaning of life answer is 42. But let's not talk about 42 right now. Let's talk about number 28. And that is the episode number we are on right now. And I am... I'm pretty excited right now about this episode, Uh, mainly because it's a a personal milestone for me. When I had the idea for this show, uh, I knew the show was ultimately going to culminate in this episode. I didn't know how many episodes it would take, but conceptually, this is where I wanted to end things. Uh, You can't get more large of a question than the meaning of life. So, my original plan was to, to take you guys up the ladder, to take you up the stack, so to speak, and uh, in Hack Stack with the finale of the big question What is the meaning of life? Now, uh, after giving it some thought, I kind of enjoyed doing this, and I will continue uh, to post episodes on various aspects of the, uh, the five F's in life. And for review, broadly, those five F's are fitness, finances, uh, friends and family, and faith which is what we're talking about here in the Big Climax. Um, you know, what is the ultimate purpose of life? And I think for such a, a heavy question, this will actually be kind of a, a fun episode for you guys to kind of to go through. And how I'm going to do this is I'm going to walk you through a series of clips. Um, that's nothing new to this show. But what's somewhat unique about this these clips is most of these clips are given by atheists or non-believers or or somewhere closer to that category of they either flat out don't believe in God or they're not sure if he exists, that kind of thing. And I'm going to walk you through what I would consider um, just, you know, sort of a normal person talking about this subject. And I'm going to kind of step up the clips and each clip, it's going to get more in-depth and more in-depth and we're going to end up at a you know a phd like super smart philosophical take on this subject and that may sound a little intimidating but it's it's actually trust me here it's actually really really easy to follow and you might be wondering you know why why are you always talking about atheists and theists why why (laughs) you go to these extreme right i know there's a lot of people in there that consider themselves quote-unquote spiritual or they believe in a higher power or something like that well I'm going to talk about all that as well. It's just sometimes it's easy to highlight kind of these really opposite end of the spectrum type views uh, because that will help clarify and focus in on things. So once we make that distinction between what theists typically say about the meaning of life and what atheists typically say about the meaning of life, uh, I'm going to dial it in just a little bit more at the end of the show to talk about some of the different religions and the other views on uh, the meaning of life. So I I think it'll be a really well-rounded episode to get you guys uh, thinking. And of course, given the weight of the show, I've got some extra credit for you as well if you are so inclined to partake in such information. But for now, we're going to ramp up the first clip, and I am going to play something for you that I found on YouTube. And it's it's given by an atheist, and from what I can tell, she's a a, a teenage girl. Uh, I don't know, maybe early twenties, but seems to be just a normal girl who happens to be an atheist. And she's sort of wrestling around with this question about what is the meaning of life. And the thing I like about this clip is it's very it's very honest. It's it's very genuine. It's just someone that's kind of kind of searching and wrestling with this question. And I think most of us have been there at one time or another, and if you haven't, well, (laughs) this will probably make you start to think of of this big question. So uh, I'm going to play this clip, and that will set the stage for the rest of the episode. All right, fasten your seatbelts. Let's go.
3: What ultimate meaning has life? In effect, what is the point? (laughs) Um, This is actually a really good question for an atheist because obviously we don't really have... The leisure of, of having a higher power um, tell us what our purpose is, or what, or give us meaning to life. Um, and this is actually probably the most daunting part of realizing that I was an atheist, because um, you know my entire perspective on life changed. I once had the comfort of knowing that I had a plan and there was a purpose and. Um, you know, there was a meaning. It was just something I completely accepted and didn't really ponder, um, how lucky I was to, to just have that, you know? Um, but when I realized I was an atheist, and it's not something that you you really choose to be, or at least a lot of people don't choose to be an atheist, um, in America. I was raised religious and then realized one day, oh my gosh, I don't believe any of this stuff anymore and um so then you really do you know you lose your purpose in life that was just handed to you you lose the meaning to your life that you just always blindly accepted um and and it really worked when you accepted it you know you had that meaning um you never had to think about you know what meaning was there you just knew. So, um Yeah, for a while I was very depressed and um then I don't know, it just I I feel that the purpose of life is gonna vary um for everyone. And that purpose is driven by what your internal passions or curiosities are.
2: Okay, so there you go. A real quick clip um i think you know at first i hear that and i I think there's some there's obviously a lot going on and at first i think well you know got some confusion on not having a choice and and i'm not sure why some people don't have a choice to be an atheist but apparently that only matters in america so there's some philosophical confusion going on there which which is fine um but I hear that and, and in my heart, I'm like, oh man, if, if she could just go back and listen to episode number 26, <laughs> The Atheist Gauntlet, and just see some of the, uh, the confusion there. And actually, this, this is a good place to, to stick this in. I, I should have mentioned it earlier. But so we're at the top of the pyramid talking about the meaning of life. This is the end of level four and level four actually starts on episode number 24 with Truth Hacks. Um, if you haven't listened to all the episodes but you're interested in these deeper questions and you sort of just saw this episode title, The Meaning of the Life, and started listening to it, uh, for a full and proper discussion, uh, just to put everything into context, you probably want to go back and start with uh, episode 24. But anyway, back to this show. I mean, I hear like the how genuine this girl is and how like stressed she is, and she even mentions the word depressed. And I, I hear this, and I, I just think of, like, the angst of youth. And, and it reminds me of this song. Like, I don't listen to the radio much, but it just so happened, I, I've, I've listened to the radio the last few weeks. I've kind of cleaning the intellectual palate from audiobooks and in some of these podcasts on The Meaning of Life. So I've just kind of been vegging out, listening to the radio and I, I catch a glimpse of this catchy song that I've heard many a time, and for whatever reason, I just decided to listen to the lyrics. And man, it it's actually pretty deep. And it's it's by Twenty One Pilots, and it's called "Ride." Yeah, that, that's it. Pretty pretty cool, <laughs> pretty cool little jingle. You know, not to read too much into that song, as you, as you can hear, it, kind of playing in the background. But it, it talks about some deeper questions in life or at least it seems to you know I, I take a bullet for you but i don't see any bullets whizzing by my head you know would i really do that for you i you know i don't know and, and i think the word ride is referring to and of course I'm, I'm interpreting it's a song i mean i could be completely off here but the way i, I listen to it is the ride is like the ride of your life and you don't know exactly how it's going to end and you can you can hear some of the frustration in the song yep yeah, there you go there you go and then 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 the song's jingle you know one of the the main parts of the song he's just been i've been thinking too much i've been thinking too much So we just listened to this clip from this this young woman, and I, I think here is where all the confusion lies, and I'm gonna just lay it out there and we'll and we'll we'll build from there. So theists will basically accuse the atheists and, and us theists will say something like this. You know, if you're an atheist, there is no meaning to life. And atheists hear that and they, they, they sort of take offense to that. And they're they're like, How can can you say that my life has no meaning? And how what I just described is the confusion on this question. And that's what I want you to be aware of. And I think that's what was confusing uh, this young woman that we just heard. So there's two questions, and they make all the difference in the world. So the first question is What is the meaning of my life? You know, what am I here for? Am I here to. Get a job and saving my 401k. Am I here to be a firefighter? Am I here to save the world? Like, what am I supposed to do here? And the other question is, what is the meaning of life? As in, like, life in general? Why is the human species here? Is there a reason for us being here? And the theist point of view is, hey, if you don't believe in God, and in fact, if there isn't a God, then there is no ultimate meaning in life. So put another way, the, the question is really confusing unless you ask it this way. And from now on, <laughs> whenever you think of this question, I want you to ask it this way, or at least be aware of it in your head, and all the confusion will just disappear. And the question is, is there objective meaning to life. And that's, that's it. The key word is objective. Is there an objective meaning to life? Now, I think there is, and I'm going to tell you what that is in very clear terms at the end, but it's something we're going to build up to. But I just want you to realize that, well, since you guys have been through truth hacks, you now know the difference between subjective and objective. And that's where all the confusion lies. And sometimes I don't especially for the, the atheists that are like elite thinkers and highly educated that look, they know this difference. And so I think they're kind of sandbagging and just trying to be dismissive and push the question aside. Um, like someone like we just heard is genuinely confused. And I, I think most of the people listening to uh, this podcast right now are probably somewhere in the middle but I want to push you closer to uh, a, a greater understanding of this question. Now, now whether you ultimately decide that life has no objective meaning or not, I mean, that's up to you. Um, you're a free will creature entitled to that. I just want to make sure you understand kind of the, the name of the game, uh, the stakes uh, that are involved in this question. And at the very least, just don't confuse these questions. There's a big difference between... What's the meaning of my life and what is the meaning? What is the objective meaning of life? So hopefully that wasn't too confusing. But just to kind of highlight that, I am going to have uh, a bunch of atheists build my case for me. So I am claiming that if you're an atheist, there is no objective meaning. So with that in mind, we're going to listen to this next clip. Um, you know, I found this clip I, I got I, in my head, I, I could just be making this up, but in my head, this is, this is a guy in college, maybe studying in advanced degrees, uh, the way he talks, I know for sure he's at least thought about this subject and done some study on this subject. So he may have advanced degrees, but anyway, uh, I think it's a little more advanced than the last clip, uh, on an intellectual level anyway. And I just want you to keep that in mind as we get just slightly more sophisticated with each clip. So again my point is if you're an atheist there is no objective meaning in life so let's see what this guy says
4: what's the meaning of life now that is a truly big one it is probably the most important question that humanity has been asking itself ever since we were smart enough to contemplate the implications of our existence many answers to that question have already been given they've been given in literature prose novels philosophy the answers to the question could also be made with respect to certain categories. From a biological perspective, the meaning of life is to consume and reproduce. Many may argue that the meaning is to survive and seek comfort. Many will argue that the meaning of life is to serve God, or to have children, or to live a good life, or to live a happy life, according to Dalai Lama, for instance. If we have to take a look at this question from an entirely default perspective, and ask the most powerful computer in the universe what the meaning of life was, we would probably get an error message. Um, This question itself might not only have an answer, but this question may not even be asked. We could be committing a category error just by asking the question. We could be attributing a property to the question by asking the actual question in the first place. Regardless, I would argue that there is no objective meaning to life, because there was never a universally outlined mandate given to humanity by the supreme ruler of the universe. However, that does not mean that there are no meanings in life. There are plenty of meanings in life. There are plenty of things to fix and improve. My argument is that the meaning of life is to reduce suffering and to live a productive life.
2: Okay, <laughs> there you go. I can I can hardly keep a, a straight face when, when I, I listen to stuff like that. So, and, and here's why I'm kind of chuckling. Uh, first off, you have uh, a, an atheist that is saying... Uh, he's basically just admitting, and I agree, if you're being intellectually honest, you have to do that. He's he's basically admitting there's no objective meaning to life. But then he immediately turns around, uh, and he actually uses the word however, and, and then he rattles off some things that sound awful objective. You know, namely, he, he mentioned reduce the suffering in the world, so he's like, ah, There's no objective meaning. However, you know, I'm going to argue that you should try and reduce suffering in the world. And there's, there's this constant conflict like that when atheists address this subject and it comes up time and time again. And they basically try and make objective things like subjective, like, Hey, look, I've got meaning in my life. I am doing good. You know, I'm reducing suffering. Well, that that's usually pointing to an objective standard and and that's that's where the kind of tension uh lies so to, so to further buttress the point i'm trying to make I'm going to play another clip from... Uh, this is called The Atheist Experience. Uh, now, this is this is kind of a, a step up, in my opinion. You know, it's it's a few guys, a few atheists that host a radio talk show, and they're atheists, and, you know, they're kind of the reverse of Greg Kokel, right? Greg Kokel is a theist, and he tries to defend the Christian faith, and he'll take phone calls from anyone, and he'll be real cordial, and uh, he'll, he'll address uh, really hard objections Well, this is a call-in show except it's hosted by atheists and they will take calls from fellow atheists or from religious people that disagree with them. And I don't know, maybe I'm biased. I don't think they're as cordial and as nice, but I do have a a fair amount of respect for their willingness to sort of put a stake in the sand and and defend it. Um, I think they, they fail sometimes obviously, but I want you to I want you to start to pay attention to to some of the common themes that you're gonna see. They hear the question, the meaning of life, and there there's almost an offense there that's how can you say my life doesn't have meaning? And and there's just confusion, right? They're they're not answering the question, does life have objective meaning? They're sort of upset that people would even question the fact that their life doesn't have any subjective meaning. And it's just really, really some confusion. But I just want you to, to see how this plays out. And at the end of each one of these clips, there's always something that just kind of makes me scratch my head. You'll probably figure it out. But uh, let's let's play this one and take another step down our meaning of life journey. Here it is.
5: I've always been baffled by religious people who seem to think that life can only have any sort of value whatsoever if we are just this one specific thing and can't be anything else, oh, we, we, we can't just be these biological machines. We can't just be... A sack of meat. Yeah, uh, you know, we can't just be meat computers while, you know, walking around doing stuff. No, we have to somehow be these little More angels things. in training or, or whatever it is we are, just imbued with some sort of special magical substance that will go on after we die and live forever in happy land or whatever. I've always found that really, really strange. Like your life, I mean, you're living it right now, okay? And what gives meaning to your life are, are just, it seems to me it would be the same thing either way, right? Whether we had souls or not, you know, it, you, you have achievements, you, you have, um, you, you determine what your goals are, you have interpersonal relationships with your family and your friends, all the things that you do in your life, that's what sort of brings value and meaning to your life.
6: One of the things that, that Chris said in an email that, that I addressed is, this idea about the meaning and value of a life, meaning and value are are, are things that we imbue, uh-huh. a, a characteristics that we imbue upon objects, including ourselves. But the, the theist has this idea of some grander meaning, as if there's there's some other intelligence out there that, that would value us, and that without this other intelligence valuing us, we, we are worthless. That that this is all irrelevant, um, which I I, I find. Well, they say very, meaning, very as being, sad.
5: meaning as being something that has to be externally imposed upon your life. Yeah,
6: I, I find yeah. that very sad. It reminds me of the people who, um, uh, you know, a, a psychologist might evaluate somebody who's in that position in a, in a relationship um, as as having dependency issues yeah. where or validation issues where they can't do anything unless there's some approving figure to do this. But what Chris said, which which kind of got my dander up, was that this his view is that... This is this life, this existence that we have, is all ultimately meaningless. But there are people who believe that there's this God thing um, that created your soul thing and then stuck it here in this meat sack machine thing um, for a period of X number of years to be to
5: judge whether or not it's worthy to go on to what next phase of its existence.
6: Yeah, um, they just hope that it's true. They just hope that there's something more than this. And while I think on some level it's fine to hope for more, on another level, um, it's not so fine. Because every minute that you spend hoping for something more is this minute that you're not spending appreciating what you do
7: have, the one and only we're life. A relatively you, know. Smart, you know, race, right? We're a relatively smart species and, and one of our sort of curses of being smart is that we uh, we're able to contemplate our own futures and uh, sometimes those futures aren't very pretty sometimes you know we we will contemplate the fact that we're going to be dying eventually and we're and we as a species are going to die out eventually and maybe maybe sooner maybe later um, and certainly certainly our our planet will die because the Sun will engulf it someday that's just the sort of way it is and I guess the uh, the way I would combat it is, is to focus on what you can do now in the finite lifetime you have uh, to maybe help out other people or you know I I struggle with this how do you how do you come up with something how do you how do you have a legacy that lasts right and, and you can do that through children you can do that through creating things you can do that through the influence you have on other people but um, you know it's just it's just part of reality It's just you know I mean in, in a sad way we're lucky we can we can contemplate our future but you know it's not that pretty this idea of of
6: feeling uh, overly depressed that the universe will eventually end or that your life will eventually end is I kind of look at it as a bit like uh, trying to have your cake and eat it too. Um, it's just, as Don was saying, it's just the way it is, and it's it's doesn't it's not necessarily a pleasant or a happy thought, but it doesn't have to be anything that you know ruins your day.
2: <laughs> okay, there you go. Um... Man, again I don't mean to like kind of chuckle each time, but uh all right, so so here here's how that clip ended. Yeah, you know, we we admit that your life's going to end uh and, you know, the universe will die in heat death, but hey, don't let it ruin your day. How about you and I go get a piece of pie and maybe some coffee? Like it just seemed I just struck me as such an odd thing to say. Like, yeah, the world's going to end, your life is meaningless, uh universe is going to end uh but hey don't let it ruin your day and but you know in all honesty what what are they admitting um they are admitting there is no objective meaning now you'll also notice though that they kind of shift gears and try and say well most meaning in life comes from what we as humans imbue onto objects now, imbue is kind of a tricky word. It's, it's got several meanings. Um, I actually had to Google it to make sure I, I understood it correctly. But it means to saturate or to, you know, it's, it's the subject is placing something into the object, right? So basically, it's just a really fancy word to say it's subjective. Like, you know, all the meaning is subjective. But notice what they rattle off as subjective, they say things like, you can find meaning in your achievements, in your goals, in your relationships with your family and friends, and with helping other people out. Now, I I agree those are meaningful things, but they're objective meanings. Um, they are good whether you admit it or not. Um, so to illustrate that, I'm going to play uh, another clip, and and now we're we're starting to get into some high level, really high level heavyweights like intellectual uh, philosophers that have written and published papers and books, uh, and and I want to kind of contrast that and, and notice that each person is saying, well, you can do, you can have meaning in your life by doing these things, and all the things that they mention are very uncontroversial things like helping people. The dirty little secret they don't tell you is, well, you know what, if you want to do something really trivial, like count the number of leaves that are in a tree, or if you wanted to do something harmful, like, hey, you know what, I'm gonna try and sleep with as many women as I can. That's what's gonna bring meaning to my life. The dirty secret is the atheist that is being intellectually honest can't say that one choice is better or worse than the other. And those are a couple of extreme examples. But in this clip, you'll notice it's an interview and it's going along fine. And the guy that is just doing his job asking questions sort of trips her up at the very end with a question, with a question about Sudoku's, uh, those little number puzzle things. And, I, and just to bring things back full circle, I don't know if you guys remember this from uh, the clip I played uh, an episode or two ago with Christopher Hitchens. Where he was asked a question and he sort of stammered and stuttered and kind of fumbled and didn't know what to do. And back then I said, hey, r- remember that. Remember what he did, because uh, that is a really good indication that someone truly doesn't have an answer. It's it's kind of like, boom, uh, gotcha. Except these aren't questions that sneak up on you. Th- these are questions that are actually in the person's field that they have been studying for in some cases years or their whole life but yet they still can't answer them and they still you know stumble and stutter and kind of seem like uh, kind of you got me on that one so anyway it's just kind of a quote-unquote tell like if you're playing poker that maybe the view is, is a little weaker than that person w- would like but um, check this clip out and I think you will see what I mean. All right, let's roll it.
0: This is Philosophy Bites with me, David Edmonds. And me, Nigel Warburton.
1: Sisyphus was a figure in Greek mythology who was condemned by the gods to roll a huge stone up a hill, only to watch it roll back down again and to repeat this process ad infinitum. Even if poor old Sisyphus came to terms with his fate and ended up enjoying it, it doesn't sound very, well, meaningful. This week's Philosophy Bites is about meaning in life, with an eminent philosopher from the University of North Carolina, Susan Wolfe. To say of someone that they're living a meaningful life, she says, it's not enough that they're happy. Nor does it necessarily mean they're especially moral, devoting their lives to others. Meaning is a separate category from fulfillment or morality. To live a meaningful life requires engagement in activities or relationships that are objectively valuable. And it's not
0: valuable to spend your life in the equivalent of Sisyphean stone pushing. Susan Wolf, welcome to Philosophy Bites.
8: Thank you. I'm glad to be here.
0: We're going to focus on the topic of meaning in life. What is that?
8: It's a dimension of a good life. We tend to think that some people's lives are more meaningful than others. Sometimes we feel there's something missing in our lives, and it's not just pleasure. It's something more difficult to get a handle on, and meaning is the word that comes up to try to express that. You want something that will be more rewarding in a special way.
0: And is that a moral question? What is the meaning in my life?
8: It's not the same question as what is the meaning of my life, When talking about the meaning of life, we often think of it in terms of what's the purpose of life? What am I put on this earth for? That sounds almost like a religious question. That's different from thinking about whether my life is meaningful. Does it have something in it that gives it a point? I think I started thinking about this subject as a result of thinking that philosophers... And maybe everybody else tends to think of life in terms of two other categories, neither of which meaning fits, namely happiness or self-interest. You know, what I want out of life is to be as happy as possible. So that's one dimension of a good life, for it to be happy or go well for oneself. And another is morality or being good from an impersonal standpoint. But it seems to me that many of the things that we do in life don't fit into either of those categories as really what's driving us.
0: I'm really interested in meaning to someone's life.
8: So let me give you two kinds of examples. And I think they're the most familiar things that people structure their lives around. One kind will have to do with personal relationships and another kind with any kind of non-personal but vocational or activity that you're really engaged in so start with doing something for your children making a an elaborate halloween costume for her well this is an american example since halloween isn't such a big holiday here perhaps i can just remember spending hours really losing tremendous amount of sleep trying to get the costume just right for my daughter's halloween parade the next day thinking i'm not doing this because it's in my self-interest. It's not making me happy. If I got a few more hours of sleep, I would be better off. On the other hand, I'm certainly not doing it because it's better for the world or because I have a moral duty to make an elaborate Halloween costume. I'm doing it for my daughter. But having this relationship with my daughter, loving my daughter, doing things out of love for her, that's one of the things that gives meaning to my life. Another kind of example is writing a philosophy article and working very hard on writing the philosophy article. So I've gotten two drafts, but I keep working at it to make it better, and it can be painstaking. It can make you nauseous. Again, you can lose sleep over it. If you've got tenure, not that many people are going to notice the difference. I'm not sure that I'm better off by making it that little bit much better. Certainly the world doesn't care that much. I could do much more good if I were raising money for Oxfam or whatever. But I'm doing it to get it right. I'm doing it because of an attachment to philosophy and the values of good, clear writing, the quest for truth.
0: So is that a subjective value for you, or are you suggesting there is an objective value in the relationship of a mother to her child or of a philosopher to her article?
8: (laughs) Well, you see, it's just the (laughs) the right two things. In my view, it's essential to meaningfulness that it has both of those things and that they're appropriately linked. So the idea of meaning is the idea of doing something that you are subjectively very attracted to, engaged by, excited by, but that the thing to which you're devoting all this energy and attention is objectively valuable. If I didn't love philosophy, then it wouldn't give meaning to my life to keep banging my head against the wall to get a better article. On the other hand, if what I loved was not philosophy, but Sudokus, and I was just spending hours on end trying to solve the ultra-hard Sudoku, that wouldn't be objectively valuable, and so that also wouldn't give meaning to my life.
0: Would it be fair, then, to contrast your view with an existentialist viewpoint, something like Sartre is going to say that you have to create your own meaning in life from your subjective choices, there is no objective value out there, that's just the human condition, whereas you're saying meaningfulness comes from the combination not of creating your values but of of enjoying the things that you do and, and wanting to do them and them having some objective value.
8: Yes, that's exactly right. So my view is that Sartre's view in the end collapses, that that's not meaningfulness. I mean, it might be a kind of authenticity and you're fully consistent with yourself, but there's no category of meaningfulness if there's no objective value.
0: Going back to that example of Sudoku, what makes philosophy better than Sudoku then? Because somebody's going to say, well, philosophy is just like Sudoku. You're just solving little problems. It's a good way of passing the time. But beyond that, there's nothing objectively valuable about philosophy.
8: Actually, it's a good question. And I think probably the worry is that there's nothing objectively valuable about philosophy. Um, so it's easier to say why Sudoku isn't valuable than why philosophy is, which is, well, it's not doing anything good for anyone else. It's not creative. Obviously, in answering it this way, I'm showing that I don't have a theory of objective value.
2: Okay, those Sudokus or Sudokos or however you pronounce them, uh, those really tripped her up. And she had to admit, and I quote, I don't have a theory of objective value. I hope you're starting to see the tension. It should just show up time and time again. And I hope you feel a little more comfortable with that. Here is obviously a very smart woman, uh, very uh, decorated in academics, published papers, uh, professor at university. has been studying this for a long time, given a lot of thought to this and is tripped up by that relatively simple question. And the reason she's tripped up is because there's, there's tension there. She, she understands, and I would say intuitively, like all human beings get this, but she understands the objective value in certain things. She just can't explain that, and let me qualify it, she can't explain it without invoking an external standard like God, which I would argue emotionally or for whatever reason she doesn't want to do. So that's why these simple questions trip people up. Now I've got just a couple more uh, of these little clips, and then we'll start to go into uh, some solutions, and, and I think this will all start to make sense at the end. So let me play another clip, and this is real similar to the last one. Another highly educated intellectual philosopher, and here is his take on this uh, conundrum on the meaning of life. So,
1: what exactly
2: are we asking when we talk of life's meaning?
1: Thaddeus Metz is distinguished research professor in philosophy at the University of Johannesburg and an, he's been giving some of his own deep thought to it. His recent book is an analytic study of meaning in life and it's fired up some lively debate and discussion. He's trying to come up with a plausible theory of what all the meaningful aspects of a life have in common and perhaps all the meaningless ones as well.
9: These days most of us who think about this philosophically draw a distinction between between the meaning of life on the one hand and meaning in life on the other. Uh, And when we speak of the former, when we talk about uh, meaning of life, many of us uh, restrict that phrase to talk about what would make human life as a whole meaningful, or the why is the human species here, or what is the point uh, of human life as such. But when we talk about meaning in life, we could also talk of meaning in a life. We're talking much more then about how might a particular person live her life so as to enrich it with meaning uh, or
1: significance. So where is the interest in the account now in that situation the meaning in life enriching a life or the purpose of life?
9: Well both are going on. I in particular have focused uh, quite heavily on what would make an individual's life meaningful and so have most of the other philosophers but recently uh, some have noticed that there's been a dearth of work on the larger question of what might make uh, the human species uh, meaningful and so that's, there's a bit of an upswing on that. So where do you start with your account? Do you start with happiness? Only to set it aside, right? So part of what I do is to say, look, if we're talking about what makes a life meaningful, it seems like just we're not talking about what makes a life Happy. They seem like two different things. Um, So when I'm uh, eating chocolate ice cream and watching a television series, um, I'm pretty happy. Uh, There's a lot of pleasure going on there, but it's not a good candidate for what would make my life meaningful. And conversely, it seems like we can have, uh, just as we can have happiness without meaning, it seems possible to have meaning without happiness, uh, unfortunately. Perhaps not the best sort of meaning. Uh, But often we think that meaning can come from sacrifice. Mm. So if I think of Nelson Mandela uh, spending his 27 years in jail, uh, but doing some good uh, by virtue of having stayed in jail, uh, and more generally struggled against apartheid, I doubt it was pleasant for him.
1: (laughs) go to the two sides of the ledger that you talk about one side is the supernatural side the other side is the naturalistic side perhaps Mm -hmm. if we could explore that a little bit the supernatural side for a lot of people this will come naturally and that is that there is something greater grander there's something cosmic possibly god uh, that helps settle the question of what is meaningful in life Mm -hmm. tell me about how you see the supernatural side
9: The standard view is that uh, meaning has to come by relating to God in some way. That's the most common view, and it's the one I explore the most in my work. Even more specifically, uh, it's common to think that uh, meaning would come by playing a role in God's plans. The trick is to figure out what God's purpose for the universe is, or what his purpose might be for you in particular, Uh, and the more you uh, uh, do to uh, carry out his intentions for you, uh, the more meaningful your life.
1: That's the most common view which enables us then to trip across to the other side which is the naturalism or the naturalistic side tell me about the way you approach that
9: Right. So the naturalist denies that we need God or a soul to have a meaningful life. There are usually two versions uh, uh, drawn here, a distinction between subjective and objective views. Subjective views say what makes your life meaningful uh, depends on the subject, depends on the particular individual and what she wants or what she aims for or what she believes. And the existentialist, in particular Jean-Paul Sartre, is often associated with this kind of perspective. According to him, life your life is meaningful, just uh, its meaning is a function of the particular, particular choices you make. One person will make certain choices and that's meaningful for her. If another person makes other choices, uh, that other life plan uh, uh, is equally meaningful objectivists deny that. Um, They say, no, there's certain kinds of choices that you really ought to make if you want to have a meaningful life. And some choices are intuitively meaningless. If you choose to uh, simply eat chocolate all day um, uh, or collect uh, uh, rubber bands, um, those are possible. You can fulfill your goals uh, if those were your ends, but they wouldn't make your life nearly as meaningful as if you uh, created an artwork or raised a child with love for example it seems to me the bar for
1: the objectivist is going to be much higher than for the subjectivist. I mean, you would then have to... Subjectivist would just say, look, I like counting blades of grass, whereas uh, <laughs> the objectivist would say, well, hang on, you know, is that worthwhile? That's right. It's a much higher bar. So how does one then go
9: about trying to build an account of an objective view? Again, uh, in uh, in this field, we try to work as much as we can with the cases that are least controversial. We try to start with very clear cases of, of meaningfulness or or meaninglessness. So we've got Mandela, we've got Mother Teresa, we've got Gauguin as some exemplars of meaning. And then we intuitively have uh, cases where there's an absence of meaning, the experience machine uh, that you mentioned before, uh, the counting blades of grass example as well. So the trick is to develop uh, a theory, a basic principle that uh, does a particularly good job of making sense of these two lists that we implicitly construct, a list of what's meaningful and a list of uh, what's it's meaningless. And so the burden on the subjectivist is to make sense of uh, the widespread firm conviction that there really was something to Nelson Mandela and Mother Teresa, at least in our stereotypical descriptions of them, that made them particularly meaningful. And it doesn't look like a particularly good explanation is that they just did a better job of uh, achieving whatever random ends they happen to pick. It seems to be something about the particular content of the choices they made that is relevant to the meaningfulness of their lives so where are you on that scale you're an objectivist i imagine. (laughs) i'm an yes i'm an objective naturalist so i believe there is meaning in life and i think the best way to understand its nature is to say that it's a matter of uh living in a certain way in a purely physical world if there were god uh all the better for us terrific (laughs) uh you'd accept it i would love it I'd be much happier. (laughs) And I I would think uh, that a certain kind of meaning would be available to me uh, that I don't have available to me now. But that doesn't, you know, the absence of a God wouldn't render my life utterly insignificant.
2: I hope you're seeing a pattern here. So he basically says, okay, so when asked if God exists, he was laughing and it it almost sounded like, gosh, that would be nice. I just, that sounds so ridiculous to me. I mean, that's kind of the vibe I got with that comment. And and he mentions, you know, the absence of God wouldn't utter my life insignificant. Which I guess I agree with that. It just depends how you define those certain terms. So again, he is he is rubbing up against these contradictions. And as a matter of fact, he call he's like, oh yeah, for sure, I'm an ob- objectivist, and he calls himself what an objectivist naturalist. Which I'm telling you, is very contradictory and doesn't make much sense, right? okay how can i i don't know put this in context how about this if if i said i'm a loving tolerant wish every race could get along member of the kkk i mean what would you think about a statement like that doesn't that seem like well wait a second the kkk is for white supremacy and segregation but you're you're a member of that and you also say that you want all races to get along and be tolerant and loving and live together nice like those those just don't go together so when someone says they're they're an objective naturalist, I mean naturalism is like materialism and that 's like an atheistic kind of view in objectivism you're you're talking about an external standard like a god, so you know i don 't know exactly what he means when he says i 'm an objective naturalist. I just want you to realize that some Sometimes really smart people make some some nonsensical statements. Uh, and I think that's not because they're not smart. I think that's because they're trying to hold two things. They're trying to kind of have their cake and eat it too, right? They're, they don't want there to be a god, but they also realize it's pretty plain to see that there's some objective meaning in life. And to put the explanation point on this, I'm going to play one little... A quick clip. I think it's less than two minutes, but it's the question and answer session uh, with a debate between um, a theist, William Lane Craig, and an atheist. And someone asked the question to the atheist about the meaning of life. And wouldn't you know it, he he answers it in in the way we've heard all episode. Um, And it's, I mean, you're you're gonna pick up on it, and finally, William Lane Craig, uh, at the very end, he just sort of like, "Hey, I th- I think you're confused, and and here's why, and I I think this little clip uh, just really highlights the shortcomings of." of the confusion of the question. It's just my feel is when you get to this high level, when you get to people that are professors and universities and publishing papers and are, are actually taking part in debates, uh, they know the difference. They just can't reconcile it. And my claim is they can't reconcile it because it can't be reconciled, right? You can't say there's objective meaning, uh, without God and it sure seems like when we look all around there seems to be a whole bunch of stuff that seems a lot more meaningful than a whole bunch of other stuff but check out this final clip before we start to go into the uh, solution all right here it is
10: my question is for Dr. Parsons you said you wanted a definition of the meaning of life you said that life is meaningful just by having friendships and finding exploring such as Einstein in that his life was meaningless well what is the point of life to explore and find new worlds if all who will ex- exist and experience it will just
2: end up dead six foot under
5: very good question. Let me say, though, that I take precisely the opposite view. Martin Heidegger, who was a German philosopher that said almost everything, almost everything he said was incomprehensible, said one thing that I really liked. He said, it is the fact that life is finite. It is the fact that we shall die that gives our life meaning, that gives us the responsibility of creating meaning in our lives. Yes, we only live 70 years, okay? Seventy years, that's about it. Each day is important. Each day that you let slip by without doing something meaningful in your life is a day that is gone forever, okay? All the more, the fact that we shall die means all the more that we have the responsibility of squeezing out of every moment of life, every day of life, squeezing as much meaning and significance as we can get. And, uh, you know, it took me 40-some-odd years to realize that, but by golly, that's what I'm doing now.
11: Well... I think it's really odd to talk about I have the responsibility to squeeze meaning out of life. Responsible to whom? Uh, okay, well, then in that case I would say why, uh, why is it any different whether somebody acts responsibly or irresponsibility? Your destiny is unrelated to how you act. It doesn't make any difference. Uh, for example, you said Russell campaigned against the use of nuclear weapons. Mankind will be wiped out anyway in the heat death of the universe. Uh, it really ultimately makes no difference whether mankind ever existed or not, whether one campaigned against nuclear war or one just lived in self-indulgence and, and hedonism. So it does seem to me that that Heidegger is quite wrong here, that Sartre and Camus and others were correct, that ultimately in the absence of, of God, life becomes absurd. There isn't any objective meaning to life, and the little meanings and projects we invent to fill our lives are really just Pretense, they're not really objective meanings
2: i hope that makes things crystal clear for you so let's just summarize it in that one question is there an objective meaning to life if you are an atheist you have to say correct there is no objective meaning to life period end of story But if you cling to that, that makes so many other things so hard to explain. It just seems so clear that there are so many things that have so much deep meaning in life. So now I'm going to go over a lot of the things we've played over the last two or three episodes. This is another three, three and a half minute clip. And it's going to summarize some of the things that have been discussed. And this is a clip from Frank Turek. And it really just talks about the implications of God existing. But more important than that, I I mentioned earlier in the episode that, you know, I I always make the stark contrast between a theist and an atheist and some of the the big beliefs they hold. But what what about all these people that are kind of just have different, they're religious or spiritual, but they have different views? Well, this clip is going to address that. And I I hope you see if, if some of these things are true, like, does the universe have design you know are morals a real objective thing did the universe have a beginning which i think is the easiest scientific thing to prove like even just that one thing if that's true that means a whole bunch of other things have to be false and and i just hope you guys start to see that so we're dialing it down from just the contrast between atheism and theism and we're starting to to focus in on things we're getting real close to the top of the pyramid and we're, we're going to start to wrap up this show and um hopefully some of this stuff will really start to to sink in and, and then I'll, i i said i'd do it I, i'll give you the meaning of life clear and easy to understand so let's play this summary
12: from the cosmological teleological and moral arguments We can know something about the first cause. From the cosmological argument, we know that this being is self-existing, immaterial, and eternal outside the universe. We also know that he's infinitely powerful because he created out of nothing. Why must he be eternal? Because he created time. Why must he be powerful? Because he created out of nothing. Why must he be immaterial? Because... He created out of nothing as well. He didn't create out of pre-existing material. This being must be immaterial, timeless, and powerful. From the design argument, we know he's infinitely intelligent because he put this entire universe together with such precision as we talked about last time. We also know he has purpose because he put us here for a purpose because this universe should not even be here unless there's a mind behind it. From the moral argument, we know he's absolutely morally perfect, and we also know he's personal. You don't have an obligation to an impersonal force. You only have obligations to persons. So, interestingly enough, these attributes are the same attributes of the God of biblical Christianity, and we have arrived at these attributes without opening the Bible. These three arguments, cosmological, teleological, moral, give us these attributes, all right? So, as we said last time as well... Let's go back to where we started. A number of weeks ago, we gave arguments for theism. And through these three arguments, we show that theism is true beyond a reasonable doubt, right? So if that's the case, what does that do for atheism and pantheism? They can't be true. If our logic is good to this point, if our reasoning is good to this point, you got to throw away uh, pantheism and atheism. Which means that these world religions could be true. Judaism, Christianity, and Islam, because they're theistic, right? But these world religions cannot be true. Hinduism, Buddhism, New Age, secular humanism, Mormonism, polytheism, Wicca, Confucianism, Taoism. That's New Jersey for you, right? They can't be true. Why can't they be true? Because they're non-theistic. Now, I'm not saying that everything those world religions teach is false. I'm not saying that. I'm simply saying on the issue of God, they're wrong. Now, that's a pretty big issue, don't you think? If you got the God thing wrong... You're in trouble from there. In fact, Mortimer Adler, who was one of the great authors of the 20th century, he wrote encyclopedias, he was so bright. And in one of his encyclopedias, uh, the God's entry was so long, longer than any other entry, he was once asked the question, why is it the longest entry in your encyclopedia? And he said, I suppose it's because... More implications flow from the question of God than anything else. Think about it. It's true. If God exists, then there's hope and meaning and purpose to your life. If God doesn't exist, there's nothing but despair. And how you live and what you do has ultimately no meaning if God does not exist. This is the greatest question that we all need to answer. Does God exist? If he does, then life really matters. If he doesn't, ultimately, it doesn't at all.
2: So I hope you followed all those premises. I mean, you, you sort of have to do it from all the past episodes uh, leading up to that. But basically, this is a, on the big questions of life, the meaning of life, the question of God. Existing or not existing? I mean this this comes down to a three pony race. I mean you're looking at Judaism, Christianity, and Islam. They're the only theistic reli- religions that have any chance of explaining all the things that we observe around us. So I just want you to keep those three religions in mind: Judaism, Christianity, Islam. And right now, though, uh, here is the, here's the big pay- payoff from listening to this entire episode. Uh, I'm going to play a clip from uh, Frank Turk. It's only maybe a minute long, and in clear terms, it gives the meaning of life. Obviously, I want to unpack that a little bit and expand upon it, but I think it's very, very simple and very clear, and here it is.
12: Now, back in 1988, there was a professor that did some research into the psychological state of americans and he found that the baby boomer generation baby boomer generation basically began after world war ii as you know those those you were born after world war ii he found that they were 10 times more depressed or that they are 10 times more likely to be depressed than the previous generation 10 times now why do you think that is Why? No purpose. They don't understand what the purpose of life is. The purpose of life is not the satisfaction of your desires. The purpose of life is to know God and make him known. And we've gotten away from the true purpose and we've pursued our desires, selfishly pursued our desires. And when we pursue them, we realize that we can't get the happiness or contentment we want why jesus said if you want to find your life what do you need to do lose it if you want to follow me you got to deny yourself and take up your cross you can't get happiness by pursuing it it's a byproduct of doing what you should do
2: so that's it folks that is the meaning of life to know god and make him known now i'm gonna explain that a little bit further in just a little bit but i need to dial down really really to a fine point point. and to do that i'm going to play a few bible verses for you so this again this will be real quick this is only about uh, i don't know maybe two two and a half minutes long but i want you to listen to these words and just tell me who you think this is uh, referring to just kind of think about this see
13: my servant will act wisely Therefore, I will give him a portion among the great and he will divide the spoils with the strong because he poured out his life unto death and was numbered with the transgressors for he bore the sin of many and made
2: intercession for the transgressors. So I mentioned the three pony race earlier and that being between all the theistic religions, that being Christianity, Judaism, and Islam. Well, h- how do you further dial in to see which one of those are true? Well, you can partake in a lifetime of study, and I actually there's there's benefit to that, and I would I would suggest you continue your study into this uh, topic in your exploration. But the clip I just played, let me know what did that sound like. Who who did that sound like to you? I mean, I don't know about you, but to me. Man, that that sounded a whole lot like Jesus. Well, guess what? I think it is, but it may surprise you. That verse, yes, it's in the Bible, but that's actually in the Old Testament of the Bible, also known as, in Jewish circles, the, the Tanakh. And the Tanakh consists of the teaching of Moses, also known as the Torah, and then it also has the prophets, in the writings. So basically what the Tanakh is, it's basically the Jewish Bible. Okay. Well, Christians have the old Testament and the new Testament. So pretty much the Tanakh is the old Testament. And here's what's so interesting about that verse that you just listened to that was written depending on the, the scholars and archeologists, but it's pretty much written somewhere between 600 and 800 years before Christ. And man, tell me, tell me how that's possible. I mean, you've, you've got something that seems by all accounts to go into really, really detailed account of crucifixion before crucifixion was even the capital punishment of the Roman empire. But yet it seems to explain the crucifixion of Jesus to a T. So what does one do with that? Well, it's really, really hard to explain that uh, from a natural point of view because there are two very uncontroversial facts. A, that that, that verse, that's Isaiah 53 from the Old Testament, was written uh, just called 600 years before Jesus was actually crucified. Here's the other thing. Jesus was a real person, and he was actually crucified on a Roman cross. These things are very uncontroversial and widely accepted. Uh, What most people don't know is, what do you do with Isaiah 53? I mean, most people have never heard of that. I don't know if you're listening to this podcast, that's the first time you've heard that. But that's kind of mind-blowing. That's something that I think is worth answering, you know, for your own personal benefit. How does that happen? So when you talk about a three-pony race, when you talk about these major theistic religions, they truly come down to the question of Jesus. And just a little rewind, it's only one minute, but just a little rewind from last week if you listen to, or I mean last episode if you listen to uh, the Berkeley lectures. Here is a very straightforward common sense approach to sort of hashing out this question about jesus here it is
14: now i want you to consider this argument because it strikes me as a very straightforward and reasonable argument jesus claimed to be the messiah either he was the messiah or he isn't the messiah if he is the messiah the christians are right and the jews are wrong if he's not the messiah the jews are right and the christians are wrong but under no circumstance can they both be right God is either personal or he's not personal. If he's personal, Jews and Christians and and Muslims are right on that point at least, and the Hindus are wrong. Or uh, if he's not personal, the Hindus are right and the others are wrong, but under no circumstances can they both be correct. When you die, you go to heaven or hell or get reincarnated or go to astral worlds or go to the grave, but you're not going to do them all. (laughs) Do you see the conflict at the foundation of the religious enterprise. Different religions have different pictures of the world. These pictures are incommensurable. They can't be collapsed, backed into each other, and all be basically the same. They contradict each other.
2: Okay, so we talked about the three-pony race, and you've got Christianity, Judaism, and Islam. Now, within those three, To try and further dial that down, you're really talking about Jesus. And that's why I brought up Isaiah 53. Because for those of you that don't know, um, Christianity believes everything, uh, traditionally believes everything about the Old Testament and the Jewish Bible. Jewish people, on the other hand, do not believe that Jesus is the Messiah. So that's kind of the sticking point between those two religions. So that's why I really put, well, I put it in there for several reasons. But Isaiah 53 is a way to sort of get that discussion going between, you know, who is this Jesus guy and why is he seemed to be mentioned in your Jewish Bible? And yet you guys don't believe that he's the Messiah. Like that's, that's a, a conversation worth having. As I can tell you right now, most of my Jewish friends have no idea that this verse is in their Bible. In the scholarly answers that I've heard that try to explain that verse away, I mean, everyone's entitled to their take on those things, but they're just not that satisfactory to me. And to to be fair, I, I haven't talked a whole lot about Islam on this show. I, I have read the Quran, and I've got uh, some reasons why I think... It is incorrect on the question of Jesus. The main point being written hundreds of years after the New Testament was written. But to come full circle, the point of this show was really to get you guys thinking. I I hope you realize that there is objective meaning in life. And I think it's pretty clear where that's pointing to why. uh, I hope I've sparked your intellect enough to continue to take a journey. And to further that one more step, because I truly think uh, the meaning of life is to know God and to make him known, I'm going to play one last final clip that will get your wheels turning a little bit on this person of Jesus. Who, who was this guy? And ironically, it starts off with uh, a young person with a little angst, right? We referred to that early in the show. So the angst of youth And he is addressing uh, a question to Frank Turek. And this is an account uh, of that discussion from his book, uh, Stealing from God. So here is the final clip of this episode.
15: One student was highly critical of the New Testament, but he didn't seem to know much about it. So I asked him if he had ever read the Gospels. He was flummoxed. He admitted that he never read them. The young man had rejected the good news without even knowing what the good news was. I took him off to the side and paraphrased a famous description of Jesus from a sermon called the One Solitary Life. It goes like this. He was born in an obscure village, the child of a peasant. He grew up in another village, where he worked in a carpenter shop until he was 30. Then, for three years, he was an itinerant preacher. He never wrote a book. He never held an office. He never had a family or owned a home. He didn't go to college. He never lived in a big city. He never traveled 200 miles from the place where he was born. He did none of the things that usually accompany greatness. He had no credentials but himself. He was only thirty-three when the tide of public opinion turned against him. His friends ran away. One of them denied him. He was turned over to his enemies and went through the mockery of a trial. He was nailed to a cross between two thieves. While he was dying, his executioners gambled for his garments, the only property he had on earth. When he was dead, he was laid in a borrowed grave through the pity of a friend. Twenty centuries have come and gone, and today he is the central figure of the human race. I am well within the mark when I say that all the armies that ever marched, all the navies that ever sailed, all the parliaments that ever sat, all the kings that ever reigned, put together— have not affected the life of man on this earth as much as that one solitary life. I then said to the student, I don't care where you're from, how you were brought up, or what your current beliefs are. Jesus Christ was undeniably the most influential human being to ever walk this earth. Anyone honestly pursuing truth has to at least read what he allegedly said. You may disagree with it, you may not think it's true, but you have to at least read it. He agreed, but I don't know if he followed through. It's sad, really. If I ask students, is our greatest problem ignorance or apathy? I'm afraid someone will say, I don't know, and I don't care. G.K. Chesterton famously said, The Christian ideal has not been tried and found wanting. It has been found difficult and left untried. Indeed, our biggest obstacle is not the evidence, the character of Christ, or the challenges of the Christian life. Our biggest obstacle is ourselves. We want to go our own way and do not want to be encumbered by anything that smacks of divine authority. Augustine said, We love the truth when it enlightens us. We hate the truth when it convicts us. Can you relate to this? I can. When I want to do something wrong, I hate it when someone calls me on it. Quite often I don't want to acknowledge that there is a God and I am not Him. As rebellious people, we want to suppress the voice of moral restraint to get what we want. Perhaps we don't realize that God gives us moral restraints for our benefit, not His. As an infinite being, God can't be hurt by our sin or helped by our obedience. Rebelling against God won't decrease His infinite attributes any more than praising Him will add to them. We only hurt or help ourselves by such behavior. In this fallen and dangerous world, God's moral commands serve to protect us and demonstrate that life has an objective purpose. In other words, morality directs us toward our ultimate goal in life. If there were no meaning or purpose to life, there would be no right way to live it, which is why atheism can't escape the horror of anything-goes morality. But since there is a right destination in life, to love God and others, there is a right road to get there. Our problem is that we don't follow that road very well. That's why Christianity is not, contrary to popular opinion, all about having your good deeds outweigh your bad deeds. That's what other religions teach, and it doesn't work that way. Since when do your good deeds expunge previous bad deeds from your record? No matter how many good deeds you've done, they can't change the fact that you're guilty of bad deeds. The God of perfect justice can't allow those to go unpunished, or he wouldn't be the standard of perfect justice. That's why Christianity is not about being good. Christianity is about being redeemed. We've all fallen short of God's good and perfect standard, which exposes our need for a Savior. So morality doesn't save us, but it can lead us to a saving knowledge of the one who can save us. After all, you won't know you need a Savior unless you know you've broken the law. As the Apostle Paul put it, The law was our guardian until Christ came, in order that we might be justified by faith. The law can't save you. It can only reveal your need for salvation. The law is like a mirror. It can show you that your face is dirty, but the mirror can't leap off the wall and clean your face. It simply points us to the purpose for which we were created, to know God and to make him known. There's a story in the Bible
2: where Jesus is talking to his disciple Peter, and Jesus asks Peter, he goes, who do you say I am? And that's a question I think we all will have to answer at some point. And my hope and prayer is that you answer it sooner before later. Because I truly think at the end of the day, no matter what you're chasing, if it ain't Jesus, you ain't going to be happy when you get it. So I'm going to close up this episode with one question for you to think about. And Frank Turk just mentioned it in this clip. But basically, this guy... Jesus didn't do anything by any other accounts that would be considered great. He didn't lead a nation. He didn't have riches. So here's your question. Why is he the most influential person to ever walk the face of the earth in all of history? How did that happen? All right, that's it. It has been my great Pleasure to be with you on this twenty-eight episode journey. I do plan to continue posting uh, podcasts here and there. I don't know how frequently. I've already got a few uh, episode ideas bouncing around in my head, so so stay tuned. I think you'll enjoy some of those. And for those of you that are are their interest is peaked in in what was discussed today, stick around for some extra credit. But other than that. Thank you so much for uh, giving me your time and partaking in this uh, hackstack journey. I I truly appreciate your, your listenership. I hope this is the first step in what becomes a very fruitful journey for you. Take care. It has been a true pleasure.
0: Thanks for listening. We hope you found a few nuggets of wisdom that you can apply to your life. Until next time, take action. Keep hacking and stacking your way to success.
5: There is nothing wrong with your mobile device. You are venturing into deeper meaning and higher learning. It's time for Extra Credit.
2: Well, thanks for sticking around for Extra Credit. We are going to explore the topic covered in this episode a little bit further, specifically Jesus. And when you talk about things like religion and specifically Jesus, to me, there's always two parts of things. There's the emotional part and the intellectual part. So... The intellectual part, I have some book recommendations that you may want to uh, write down. I I, I truly believe you need to both uh, pursue with heart and mind. And for the mind aspect of it, there's there's a few books. There is a book called The Case for Christ by Lee Strobel, S-T-R-O-B-E-L, Lee Strobel. Uh, That's got really good Uh, takes on arguments and just some of the sticking points that people uh, tend to debate over Uh, anything by frank turek t-u-r-e-k i've mentioned him several times i've played a ton of clips from him hugely influential on the way i think Uh, his most recent book stealing from god which was the last clip played is just absolutely phenomenal there's another book I, I highly recommend. It's a little bit more obscure, but it's it's a really, really good book. It's uh, called The Case for the Resurrection of Jesus, and that's by Gary Habermas, H-A-B-E-R-M-A-S. So those are some, some really good books that truly, truly address the intellectual side of things. Uh, I don't want to neglect uh, the emotional side and the relational side of, of things, and that's why I'm about to play for you a full audio book. And it's a book that is written as if uh, this person were to be hypothetically uh, invited to a dinner with Jesus. And what exactly that would look like. And it's called Dinner with a Perfect Stranger. And it's a couple hours long, but it does a really, really good job of uh, addressing a, a few st- sticky intellectual questions but really how those tie into personal relationships and the relational aspect of you know being in communion with God so it's really it's just a really cool book and honestly when I first started listening to it the first opening it felt a little bit cheesy to me but I as the book went on I really really enjoyed it and I want to share that with you now so This, um, you know, just consider this a way to, uh, you know, if you're already a a believer is to, you know, maybe grow in your walk a little bit. And if you're not and you're just kind of exploring, I think this is a a really good, um, a really good starter book. So so there you go. And one other thing to consider, just because it made such a huge impact in my life uh, and, you know, in my spiritual life. Uh, There's a thing called the Great Banquet. I know there's a ton of them here in Indiana, but if you want, you should go to Google and just put Great Banquet and then type in your state name. So Great Banquet, I don't know, Florida, Great Banquet, Texas, uh, whatever. There is probably a high probability that there is one of these in your state or within driving, striking distance or whatever. I mean, heck, I I even think it's totally worth getting on a plane. But basically, the long and short of these things are they're a three-day spiritual retreat. And you go there and you turn off your cell phones and you totally get off the grid and you just focus on your relationship with God. And, and how they do that is with is your, you're with a group of people, um, same sex, so you're either with a group of guys hanging out for a weekend or, or a group of gals uh, hanging out on the girls' weekend. And you go there, and you're totally taken care of. You usually sleep in the church. Every meal is taken care of, and you basically listen to, um, I don't know, what could be described as, you know I think it's like 15 talks over three days. And I know to some of you, that sounds like absolutely miserable, but it is such an amazing ride uh, to, do, <laughs> to do that. Um, you hear people's personal testimony. Uh, you hear some of their um, things that they've gone through in their life and you know how they've overcome those things. And it, it just creates a really, really safe environment. It's kind of combination sermon slash motivational talk slash personal reflection time and it's just a really really cool dynamic so anyway that would be like the pinnacle of you know if you wanted to get out of your comfort zone and try something new just just google great banquet and try and figure out a location close to you and and just take a shot and sign up and and try to attend I I I tell you you will not be sorry it's one of the most unique experiences I have ever uh, been a part of in my life And I I have been to Africa and seen some crazy things over there as far as the need of that country. And I've also done this thing that was pretty much right in my backyard. I mean, it's at this church that's like a mile away from my house. And I'm telling you, this, this by far was the most impactful thing that I've ever been a part of, is to go through this great banquet. I mean, this was you know, at this point, it's like five or six years ago. And it it seems like it happened yesterday. And it's just just an amazing experience. So that's my sales pitch there. You know, I'm just throwing out ideas for you guys to uh, increase uh, that F right that faith, you know, it's the most important F in the five F's. And with that being said, I'm going to play this book for you now. So hopefully you enjoy it. So here it is. Enjoy dinner with a perfect stranger.
10: Chapter 1 The Invitation I should have known better than to respond. My personal planner was full enough without accepting anonymous invitations to dine with religious leaders, especially dead ones. Amid a stack of credit card applications and professional society junk, the invitation arrived at my work address. Nick Kaminsky, Director of Strategic Planning... Pruitt Environmental Testing, 1825 Landover Street, Cincinnati, Ohio, 45230. It came typeset on beige crane paper with matching envelope. No return address. No RSVP. You are invited to a dinner with Jesus of Nazareth. Milano's Restaurant, Tuesday, March 24th, 8 o'clock. At first, I thought the church down the street was having another one of their outreaches. We had been outreached on more than one occasion. Their mailbox flyer awaited us the minute my wife, Maddie, and I moved here from Chicago three years ago. An endless stream of what some church worker considered promotional material followed. I actually started looking forward to them just for the amusement the sermon titles provided. The Ten Commandments, not the Ten Suggestions. If God seems far away, guess who moved? Spiritual aerobics for the marathon to heaven. Did they mean to attract anyone with those? or just make the neighborhood disdain them. Then came the events. The church bowling league invitation, the spaghetti cook-off, the marriage retreat weekend, the golf scramble invitation. In a moment of insanity, I actually broke down and went to the golf scramble. Utter agony is the only way to describe it. Parking at the course behind a guy with a My Boss is a Jewish Carpenter bumper sticker set the tone. As it turned out, I was assigned to his foursome. He had this perpetual smile, as though someone had hit him with a brick and the plastic surgeon had patched him up on an off day. As for the other two, one guy shot a nice front nine but fell apart on the back nine and started swearing every time he hit a shot. I learned he headed the deacon board. The other guy never said a word except to track our score. He must have chaired the welcoming committee. That was the last church invitation I accepted. So if that church had concocted it, There was no way I was going to this bogus dinner. But the more I thought about it, the more I concluded that someone else had sent the invitation. For one thing, how would the church have my work address? They were persistent, but not particularly resourceful. For another, this just wasn't that church's style. The spaghetti cook-off was more their bag than Milano's, an upscale Italian restaurant. Besides, they would never send an anonymous invitation. If there was one thing they wanted you to know, it was that their church was sponsoring an event. That left me in a quandary. Who would send me such an odd invitation? I called the restaurant, but they denied knowing anything. Of course, the staff could have agreed to play dumb about it, so that told me little. Cincinnati had lots of other churches, but I'd successfully avoided all contact with them. Our friends Dave and Paula went to the Unity Church but they wouldn't invite me to something like this without Maddie. One logical set of culprits remained. The guys at work. Les and Bill in particular were always putting together something crazy, like my bachelor party at a local mortuary and my guy baby shower. Thankfully, they left Maddie off the invitation list. I'd never seen such a raunchy celebration for the birth of a baby. I admit, this invitation seemed a bit strange even for those guys. And they should have known better than to send me the invitation at work. It was too obvious. Otherwise, they'd done a pretty good job. Classy envelope and printing. Bizarre event. Nice restaurant. I decided to play it cool with them, never mentioning the invite. And for three full weeks, they kept cool too, letting slip not so much as a sly grin. As the 24th approached, my anticipation grew wondering what their fertile imaginations had conceived this time. Only one thing stood between the dinner and me, Maddie. Three 70-hour work weeks had already placed me deep in the doghouse with my other half, who chafed at even my usual 60-hour pace. I couldn't think how to justify a night out with the guys, leaving her home again with Sarah, our daughter. Granted, it's hard looking after a 20-month-old by yourself all day and then all evening, too. Not to mention that Maddie ran a home graphics business on the side. If we had stayed in Chicago, either of our mothers could have helped her out with Sarah. Well, hers, anyway. My mother would have squealed at the chance to keep the baby, but staying at her house too often would probably have made Sarah like me hopefully, the 300 miles between Cincinnati and Chicago sufficiently insulated my daughter from that fate. Maddie knew when she moved to Cincinnati with me and we married that I'd be working long hours. You can't have a job like mine and clock out at five. I can just imagine waving my hand at Jim, my boss, as I passed by his office on my way out. Sorry, man, gotta go again. Maddie needs me at home at 5.30 to dice Sarah's vegetables. A few 5 o'clock departures and Jim would insist I stay home as a full-time nanny. I can see my resume now. Education. B.S. Chemistry. Northern Illinois University, 1996. M.B.A. Northwestern University, 2001. Work History. Research Chemist. Abbott Laboratories, 1996-2000. Corporate Planning Analyst. Abbott Laboratories, 2000-2002. Director of Strategic Planning, Pruitt Environmental Testing, 2002-2005. Nanny, 2005-present. 2005 to present. Keeping my current job seemed preferable, despite the dangers it presented. Truth was, between the pile on my desk at work and Maddie's perpetual displeasure at home, getting away from both for an evening appealed to me. I just wondered whether Milano's knew what it was getting into with Les's and Bill's antics. The restaurant's problems were far from my mind, though, as I approached its parking lot. Maddie shouting into the cell phone, Nick, I might as well be a single parent for all you- were the last words I heard on the way over before static saved me. That was enough. I never had figured out how to rationalize my plans for the evening. In retrospect, I should have given her more than 20 minutes notice. Blasting some R.E.M. while speeding down Anderson Ferry didn't completely drown my guilt, but it gave it a good dunking. I pulled the Explorer into the parking lot, cut the engine, and reached once more for the invitation, hoping it would give me one last hint about what to expect for the evening. It didn't. Suddenly, nothing about this dinner seemed worth the cold shoulder I'd get from Maddie later on. I was here, though. And if the whole event was a washout, I could save face with Maddie by leaving early. Showing up at home sooner than expected at least once a month seemed to buy me a little grace. After the last three weeks, I needed some, badly. Contingency plan in hand, I crossed the parking lot, breached the threshold, and glanced around the twenty or so tables. No guys with long hair and flowing robes. No guys from work, either. Chapter 2 the seating. Dinner for one, sir. The maitre d's appearance from behind the wine bar dashed my option of bolting before anyone noticed me. Sir? Dinner for one? No, I'm, I'm supposed to meet someone. I'm Nick Kaminsky. Ah, Mr. Kaminsky, right this way. He grabbed a menu and led me past the wood lattice that bordered the single dining room. The place hadn't changed since I'd brought Maddie for Valentine's two years back. Two staggered tablecloths, one white and one red, covered each of the tables. Large mirrors created the image of a side dining area. The windows on two sides of the room overlooked the Ohio River. I could see lights from the Kentucky side reflecting on the water. The current provided nice background noise, like those ocean CDs you can buy to help you sleep. Unfortunately, some lame Andrea Bocelli song that Matty loved virtually drowned out the river. Tuesdays looked slow at Milano's. Guests occupied only four tables. I inhaled the smell of toasted bread as we passed an older party of six, laughing at a front table. A couple in their early 20s held hands and made goo-goo eyes at each other in the far right corner, the guy oblivious to his shirt sleeve dangling in his ravioli. In the middle of the room... Two weight-challenged women giggled as they plunged into a monstrous chocolate tort. And in the far corner on the left, a thirty-something man in a blue business suit sat by himself, perusing a menu. The maitre d' led me over to him. Rising from his chair, he stuck out his hand and firmly grasped mine. Nick Kaminsky, he said. Hi, Jesus. In retrospect, a thousand comebacks were possible, Jesus H. Christ, so good to finally meet you. Are 12 of our party missing? I didn't know they buried you in a suit. The absurdity of the scene, though, stunned me into silence. What do you say to that? The man and I continued shaking hands a little too long until I issued a weak Uh-huh. He released my hand and sat back down. My eyes caught the maitre d's. He quickly averted his glance and picked my napkin off my plate, cueing me to sit. He placed the napkin in my lap, handed me a menu and with an enjoy your dinner, left me alone with. Thanks for meeting me, the man started. This probably wasn't the most convenient time for you, middle of the week. We stared at each other. Well, I stared. He resumed looking at his menu. He had an average build and was a little shorter than me, maybe five foot ten or so. His complexion-toned olive- His hair, dark and wavy, cut short and combed forward. His bushy eyebrows, Maddie would make me trim those, I thought, hung over deep eye sockets, and brown eyes dark enough that you couldn't quite tell where the iris ended and the pupil began. His slender nose and thinnish lips matched a chin that receded slightly, as if knowing it couldn't compete with the brows above. He wasn't GQ cover material, but he definitely spent more time in the gym than I did. His suit wasn't Armani, but it wasn't Discount Warehouse either. He looked up and caught me scrutinizing him, but he didn't seem the least bit uncomfortable. Since my eyes provided few clues as to what this whole thing was about, I decided to give my ears a shot. Excuse me, but am I supposed to know you? That's a good question. He smiled to himself, I guess. I'd say the answer is yes. I'm sorry, but... I've never met you, as far as I can remember. That's true. I looked around the room, waiting for the guys to jump out from behind the lattice, or maybe from the men's room. But no one hid behind the lattice. As for the men's room, I turned my attention to the guy across the table. Come at me again. You are... Jesus. My family called me Yeshua. Your family from... Nazareth. Of course. Well, I grew up there. I wasn't born there. No, of course not. That would have been in Bethlehem. But we didn't stay long before we left for Egypt. That was about all I needed to hear. This guy was a nut. Without saying a word, I got up, retraced my steps, passed the lattice, took a right, and entered the bathroom. Mr. Ravioli was rinsing off his sleeve, but besides him, no one. Backing out, I momentarily considered cracking the door to the women's room, but I wasn't that desperate to find Lesson Bill. I took a left and peeked through the circular window to the kitchen. Nothing. I paused, scanned the restaurant, and deciding this warranted a more direct approach, returned to the table. Look, I said, sitting on the edge of my chair, I've got better things to do tonight than have some mystery dinner with... Who are you really and what's going on here? My question had an unintended edge. After all, the guy hadn't done anything to me except meat for dinner. I know this isn't quite what you expected, but I think if you give this evening a try, you'll find it meaningful. Of course, I retorted. Who wouldn't find a dinner with Jesus meaningful? Last week I had dinner with Napoleon. Socrates the week before. But Jesus, thank you so much for coming all the way from the Holy Land. I realized my voice was carrying more than I wanted. The two women had turned our way. He sat silently. Hey, I rose again from my chair. I need to get home to my wife and daughter. Thanks for the invitation. I stuck out my hand in a conciliatory gesture. Maddie went out to a movie with Jill, he said without flinching. She got Rebecca to babysit Sarah. Okay, finally a few pieces were starting to fall into place. He knew my wife. He knew Jill Conklin, the wife of my best friend, Chris. He knew our regular babysitter, Rebecca. He knew Maddie and Jill had gone to a movie. Once more, I reclaimed my seat. Did Chris put you up to this? I couldn't imagine how Chris could be involved. It was way too weird for him. No, he didn't. I returned to my original suspects. Are you a friend of Bill Greer and Les Castler? He slid his menu aside and leaned forward. I'll tell you what. If you stay for dinner, I promise to tell you at the end who set it up. The last time Bill and Les had done something like this, I ended up wearing fake cement overshoes and getting tossed into a swimming pool on Halloween. A heated pool, fortunately. Now I was having dinner with some guy claiming to be Jesus. The waiter interrupted my thoughts, addressing the man across the table. Have you selected a wine, sir? I think I'll let my friend decide, he responded, turning to me. Would you care for some wine? Who's paying? I am. Okay, I replied. Sure. I opened the wine list and scanned thirty or so offerings, none of which I recognized. I was tempted to order the most expensive one on the list, but instead I pointed to a mid-range white. We'll take the calique. I handed the wine list to the waiter He looked back at my host, who gave a slight nod. The Vermentino di Galura Calique 98, the waiter confirmed to me. He departed, passing a busboy with a water pitcher. The busboy filled my glass first, then the other guy's, eliciting a, Thank you, Carlo. We both picked up our water glasses and took a drink. I had to admit, this guy was good. Where did they find someone willing to play Jesus for an evening? and in such an unassuming way as if he were just a normal guy. My co-workers had outdone themselves this time. But why? What was the point to all this? Les and Bill weren't particularly religious. Bill went to mass on Christmas and Easter when his wife dragged him there. As for Les, he worshipped only at Western Hills Country Club. Glancing back over at the pre-honeymooners, the mirror caught my eye. Could the restaurant have a two-way mirror? That seemed a little far-fetched, but no more so than the evening had been thus far. Our waiter appeared behind me with a bottle of wine, opened it, and set the cork down for me. I picked it up and took a whiff. Smells good. I looked up at him, detecting a slight roll of his eyes. He poured a small amount into my wine glass and handed it to me to taste. Maddie and I frequently had wine at home, but not in this class. Very nice. He poured me a full glass, then one across the table before leaving the bottle, prompting a, thank you, Eduardo, this time. Is he on a first-name basis with the entire wait staff? He must come here weekly. I was tempted to ask, but I'd already decided on a different strategy. I leaned back in my chair and turned to Jesus, suppressing my customary sarcastic smile. So, your family called you Yeshua? Most of them. James called me a few other things. Well, Yesh, do you mind if I call you Yesh? Whatever suits you. Yesh it is, then. Tell me. I held up my wine glass. Can you turn this wine back into water? Chapter 3 The Menu No problem, he replied. He turned and signaled for the waiter who came to the table. My friend would like a second glass of water instead of this wine. With a, certainly, sir, the waiter removed my wine glass and turned to retrieve water. Very funny, I muttered, before calling after the waiter, I think I'll keep my wine. Very well, sir. He returned the glass to the table. Thank you, Eduardo, my host said. Sorry to bother you. Eduardo departed. I opened my menu and momentarily buried myself in it. The quality of the dinner conversation was doubtful, but not the caliber of the food guests selected a four-course meal, an appetizer, a salad, an entree, and later a dessert. I gave half of my attention to my order, the other half to contemplating what I was still doing here. My growling stomach answered that question. I had worked straight through lunch. What do you think? I lowered my menu enough to peek over it. I think I'm crazy for not leaving when I had the chance. About your order... Last time we came, Maddie ordered something really good. What was it? The veal, I finally responded. I plopped the menu down, emphasizing my one accomplishment so far that night, deciding what to eat. I'll go with the salmon. Is this a Friday? A slight smile curled his lips. Touché, he said. He placed his menu on the table, and the waiter appeared immediately. Are you ready to order, sir? He asked me. Yes, I'll take the stuffed mushrooms, the Mediterranean salad, and veal fantarella. Certainly. He turned to my dinner partner. And you, sir? I would like the tomato and artichoke soup, the tortellini salad, and the salmon filet, please. An upgrade from his usual bread and wine, to say the least. As the waiter walked off with our menus, Jesus leaned back in his chair, took a sip of wine, and made a first stab at initiating real conversation. Tell me about your family. I thought you knew everything already. I dodged the question. You had Judas figured out. Didn't help you much, if I may say so. He probably assumed I didn't know anything about religion or the Bible, but I'd served my time in Sunday school. I'd hated every minute of it, of course. After Mother drove Dad away, she used to take Ellen, Shelley, and me to church. She'd tell us, ''We need a good influence for once.'' Stacy, sixteen by then, refused to go. I should have, too, but being younger, I wielded limited power. So I went. The lessons served as background noise to the real activities of passing notes, throwing spitwads at the girls, and stealing from the junior collection plate. The teachers were mostly nondescript. A few men who wore pasted-on smiles, trying to make it seem as though they actually wanted to be there, and women who thought that boys actually enjoyed flannel-board Bible stories. One lady, Mrs. Willard, was a classic. Her mantra was, love one another as yourself. Yet the minute someone so much as twitched an eyebrow, she'd grab him by the ear, drag him to the front, and make him write a hundred, I will do unto others as I would have them do unto me. Maybe that's what she did want others to do unto her. I learned little by example at church, but a few Bible stories did seep through. The Good Samaritan, the Bad Samaritan, the Mediocre Samaritan. I'd caught enough to keep up with this guy for a while. Why don't you humor me, he answered, ignoring my Judas reference. Where is your family from? I wasn't about to let him off the hook that easily. After all, he was the one claiming to be Jesus. Now he had to play the part. I'm much more interested in your family, yesh. I felt a smirk creep onto my face. Tell me about Joseph and Mary. He jumped right in. Growing up in Nazareth wasn't exactly like boyhood in Chicago. We didn't go for footlong hot dogs and crackerjacks at Wrigley. Oh, really? I responded sarcastically. What I didn't say was... Funny he picked Chicago, and Wrigley Field, where Dad and I went every Saturday. He continued, Joseph was a good father. He had to work a lot, but it wasn't like today. His shop next to the house had an unhurried pace. Joseph only sped up when he heard me coming. He always tried to finish a project before I could get my hands on it. He put his hand on his chin, looked away, and laughed. I didn't realize at the time how many of his pieces I used to mess up. He'd be making a table or something, and I'd want to help. Needless to say, at eight, I wasn't exactly a master carpenter. He'd go back and redo some from scratch that I'd helped on. Other pieces he'd go ahead and use. Some of the neighbors kindly accepted items that had my unique imprint. Half of me listened to this spiel. The other half analyzed him. The guys must have hired a professional actor for this part. He actually talked like he had grown up in Nazareth. This guy was good. I was going to ask about Mary when the waiter appeared with a loaf of hot bread and some spinach spread. Jesus reached for the bread knife, cut a slice, and held the board toward me. Some bread. I took the slice and tried some of the spread before proceeding with the family history. So Joseph was just a regular Joe, and Mary... It must have been rough growing up with such a revered mom. He chuckled, either slightly amused or annoyed, I couldn't tell which. She was hardly revered, more like an outcast when I was young. Having a child before the wedding was not kosher, I interjected, trying to get in the Jewish spirit of things. He paused. It wasn't the thing to do. From all the paintings- It seems like Mary was always either seeing angels or nursing you or taking you off the cross. Did she do anything in between? The question was a bit over the top, I guess. But I had to do something to rock this guy out of his routine. He acted way too natural. Even this didn't faze him, though. He just took some more bread and went on talking. I had a great mother. Her faith kept her going, and her sense of humor... "'She never let me live down my remark as a kid "'that I had to be about my father's business. "'Someone would come to our house looking for me. "'I don't know where he is,' she'd say. "'About his father's business. "'The older I got, the more,' she'd say. "'Do you think your father's business "'might involve finding a girl and settling down?' "'A smile crossed his face as he talked. "'He paused, then got more serious. "'When I finally started preaching,' It got hard for her, seeing her son worshipped one day and demonized the next. It was harder for her than she expected. Maybe she should have gone on Dr. Phil's show. He probably could have helped her out. I was finding this routine a little wearing. Look, you haven't told me anything that someone with a Bible and half an imagination couldn't make up. You're gonna have to come up with something better than these sappy Joseph and Mary stories. To do what? he asked. That was a good question. What exactly did I expect from a guy pretending to be Jesus? I guess something a little more interesting. Larry King once said that of all the personalities in history, he would most like to have interviewed Jesus. Talking with Jesus Christ or even his imposter should have been more engaging than this. Surely this guy had something in mind other than rehashing old Bible stories. His voice snapped me back to the conversation. I don't think there's much I can say that would actually convince you I'm Jesus. Well, that's one true statement. I have a suggestion. Why don't you suspend your disbelief for a while and proceed as if I am Jesus? Surely, if Jesus were actually here, you might have some questions for him. That wasn't a bad idea. We were getting nowhere with my trying to figure out his real identity. And this had the potential to be interesting. Assuming this guy knew his stuff, this might be the best philosophical discussion I'd had since northern Illinois days. We actually used to talk about Kant and Kierkegaard and even Feynman back then. The closest thing I got to that now were those ridiculous parenting books that Maddie force-fed me. Okay, fine, I replied. I have one for you. The other day, I passed by the church down the street, and their sign read, No one comes to the Father but through me. Jesus, if you actually said that, I think you're full of it. Chapter 4, The Appetizer Your tomato and artichoke soup, sir. I cringed. The waiter's intrusion had ruined the whole setup. I had just landed my first blow, had this fraud reeling, when the interruption gave him time to regroup. His dish was served first. Then Eduardo brought mine around and set a plate in front of me. Your stuffed mushrooms. I looked across the table where Jesus sat, making no move toward his utensils. Oh, great. Now what's he going to do, ask me to say grace? I usually say a short word of thanks before meals, do you mind? Whatever was my preferred response, but no, not at all, was what came out. He raised his head toward the ceiling and left his eyes open. I couldn't help but follow his gaze, wondering if I had missed something up there. I hadn't. Father, thank you for always providing for us whom you love. He lowered his head, took a spoon in his hand, and dipped into his soup. That's it, I asked. Is there something else you'd like to say? No. No, I guess that covers it. I grabbed a fork and speared one of the mushrooms. We sat silently for a number of moments, eating our appetizers. I debated how to circle back to my question when my host solved the problem for me. "'Why do you think I'm mistaken?' he asked. "'Because here you've got all these people around the world who believe in all these different things and worship God in all these different ways, and Jesus claimed only his way was the right one. "'And your difficulty with that is a lot.' Who's to say that Jesus's way was any better than Muhammad's or Buddha's or Confucius's or, well, there really wasn't a specific Hindu guy? Did he pick up on the fact that I knew which religions had a founder and which didn't? Do you think Hinduism is true? He inquired. I don't know. My friends Dave and Paula have gotten into some Hindu stuff and it seems to work for them. He reached for another piece of bread and applied some spinach spread. I didn't ask if you thought it worked. I asked if you thought it was true. Well, it's true for them. He took a bite of his bread and seemed to ponder how to respond. Before Copernicus, most people believed the earth was flat. That was false, but it worked for them. Why? I suppose it didn't matter much back then. Until Columbus, they never traveled far enough for it to be a problem. Well, except for the Vikings. And what if humanity had tried to go to the moon while still believing the earth was flat? So you're saying what people believed worked for them to a point, even though it wasn't true. But at some critical juncture, it ceased to work anymore. And? You tell me, you're the one with the master's degree. In business, not philosophy. You had to think a little. He reached for his spoon. I wasn't sure how I'd gotten off the offensive and was now playing near my own goal line, but I decided I might as well go along. Besides, I admit, I was starting to find the conversation a tad intriguing. What you're saying is that even if a belief system seems to work for someone, if it's false, eventually it'll break down. He leaned forward. And you don't want what you're ultimately trusting to be wrong. He paused a moment, then leapfrogged forward. Now, you're the scientist. Used to be. And you took that comparative religion class at Northern Illinois. What do you think? How does Hinduism line up with what you know about the universe? How did you- I started to respond, but what's the point? He seems to have this whole scene, including me, thoroughly researched. I just hope there's a limit to what he's found out. I returned to the question. As I recall- Hinduism teaches that the universe is simply an extension of this universal force called Brahman. Yeah, Brahman, the ultimate essence. So God is the universe and the universe is God. Right, there is no separate creator. He slid back in his chair. And how long has the universe existed? Well, some Hindus would say always. Brahman is eternal, so the universe is eternal. How does that match what your astronomers have discovered in the last century? I pondered that one for a moment. Not too well, I admitted. Although I had loved cosmology in college, I would have majored in astronomy if I could have made any money at it. I hadn't thought down this path before. All the evidence points to the fact that the universe had an actual beginning in time, maybe 15 billion years ago. What if that number is wrong? The universe still can't be eternal, the second law of thermodynamics. In a closed system, everything eventually winds down. In an infinitely old universe, we wouldn't see new stars or galaxies forming. It would all have wound down with no productive energy remaining. A couple of people like Hoyle tried to hold on to the steady state theory in which the universe would be eternal, but no one accepts it anymore. Jesus leaned forward and intertwined his fingers on the table. So... If Hinduism is true, how did the universe get here? I don't know. He smiled. I don't know either. We took a couple of bites before he spoke again. Hinduism's depiction of reality has other problems. Like what? Morality, for one. Humans are highly moral beings. All societies, even primitive ones, have complex and similar moral codes. Agreed. Now, let me ask you this. What is the ultimate source of morality in Hinduism? Does Brahman establish right and wrong? I picked a piece of bread off my plate and thought about that one a second. No, Brahman is amoral. With the universal force, nothing is ultimately right or wrong, it simply is. So what is the basis of morality if the source of all things is non-moral? What makes anything inherently right or wrong? We do, I suppose. But you are an extension of Brahman, which is amoral. I didn't have a reply to that one. He continued, Hinduism has a similar issue with personality. One of the things people appreciate most about themselves is their individuality. It's part of what it means to be human. Do you remember what Hinduism teaches about that? Yeah, personality is an illusion. You have to renounce it to enter into oneness with the universe. So, what you most value about yourself is illusory. One day you'll be reabsorbed into Brahman and lose your individuality. I had to admit that never had sounded all that appealing. If personality is an illusion, he asked, why are people all so individual? How did an impersonal universal force bring forth such unique personalities? But you could make these arguments about all Eastern religions. Yes that's the problem with them. The world is not as they describe. They provide a way of understanding life, but it's a false understanding. He leaned back, wiping his mouth. What do you remember about Buddhism? Buddhism was always a little easier to get a handle on than Hinduism. It was hard to forget the Four Noble Truths and the Eightfold Path. I couldn't name them all, but I did remember the main idea. Buddhism is kind of like Hinduism in its basic worldview, I said. Ultimate reality is this abstract void called nirvana. You enter nirvana by traveling an eightfold path and stamping out all attachment or desire in yourself. Once you've eliminated that, all your suffering ends. He picked up his wine glass and held it in front of him, looking at the wine and then peering at me through the glass with a strangely distorted face. He moved the glass to the side of his vision. Someone made this glass well. They were attached to a sense of fine craftsmanship. Probably. How much have humans accomplished without someone having passion? Not much, I conceded. You've taken plenty of biology. How many sensory nerve cells do we have in our skin capable of providing pleasure? Millions. So somehow, an impersonal universe has taken the form of personal beings with strong desires and the ability to feel great pleasure. And yet the goal of life is to negate all desire. He put the glass down. I suppose it doesn't make much sense, I said, making his point for him. Do you think that perhaps suffering was so great in India that Siddhartha Gautama, the Buddha, tried to come up with some explanation for it? and developed an entire belief system based on alleviating suffering? My answer, or lack thereof, was preempted by the waiter appearing on my right. Are you finished with your mushrooms, sir? I momentarily considered the two that remained. Sure. He removed our dishes, a well-timed interruption. Too much more talk about Eastern religions and my ignorance would start showing. One thing was certain. I wasn't going to play this guy in Trivial Pursuit Religion Edition. At the risk of getting in over my head, I wanted to see what he'd say about something closer to Christianity. What about Islam? I asked. Maybe pantheistic religions don't hold up, but Muslims claim to worship the God of the Bible. Who says that their version's wrong and Jesus was right? He reached for his water, then answered. That depends on whether God actually spoke to Muhammad, doesn't it? That's a lot of weight to give one guy's writings, especially one who, after supposedly hearing from an angel, wasn't sure he had heard from God, had persistent bouts of suicidal thoughts, built a following based partly on military conquest, countenanced the murder of his enemies, and married a nine-year-old, among other things. Who says that? I've never heard those things except the military part. Revered Muslim writings. The Sirat Rasul Allah. The Hadith collections of Bukhari, Muslim, and Abu Daud, The history of Al-Tabari, among others. I don't have any basis on which to argue the point with him, so I returned to his original statement. But you could say the same about Christianity, that it revolves around whether God spoke to some guy. No. The Bible has over 40 authors spanning 1,500 years, all with a consistent message. That argues for, not against, a divine origin. Still, who's to say that God didn't speak to Muhammad? If God did, he got some things wrong. Like what? Muhammad wrote that I was never crucified, that God's angels rescued me and took me straight to heaven. You mean Jesus? That's what I said. I decided not to rehash that debate. So maybe Muhammad was right. That elicited a slight smile. No, he wasn't. Oh, of course, I forgot you were there. But you don't have to ask me, he continued, ignoring my comment. My crucifixion is historically documented, not only by early Christians, but also by non-Christian historians of the time. Throw it out, and you have to throw out everything you know about ancient history. I couldn't disagree, actually. You could debate about the resurrection, but Jesus' crucifixion was a certainty. I was about to ask another question when he resumed. Islam teaches other things that aren't true. Such as, that the Bible has been altered over time so that what you have now is a highly corrupted version that can't be trusted. So? So that's false. Any scholar in the field will tell you that. The Dead Sea Scrolls, among other things, prove the reliability of the Hebrew Bible. And you have over 5,000 early manuscripts that validate the New Testament. You have what the authors wrote. It's up to you what to do with it, but you have what they wrote. He moved his wine glass toward the top of his place setting. But that's not the biggest problem with Islam. Which is... He looked around the room for a second, scanning for I'm not sure what. His eyes returned to me. What is your deepest desire? Where did that question come from? I'm not sure I want to get into that. Then let's talk in generalities. What do people in their hearts most deeply long for? A raise, I kidded. All right, half-kidded. He didn't respond. I thought for a minute, glancing around the room myself. The ravioli guy and his girl were still making cow eyes at each other across their cleared table. I suppose people's greatest desire is to be loved. I looked back at my host. He leaned forward and his voice softened. I don't mean to be too personal, Nick, but in your experience, has another person ever fulfilled your need for love? He is getting too personal whether he wants to or not. Besides, I thought we were talking about Islam. I resisted the urge to look away again, though I did shift back in my chair. I thought of my dad, of Maddie, of Elizabeth, my girlfriend at NIU. No, not really. That's because another person can never satisfy it. Only God can. He designed people that way, but Muslims never have that hope. You can't have a personal relationship with Allah. He is someone to worship and serve from afar, even in paradise. It doesn't meet the deepest need of humanity's heart. Why would God create humanity with this deep need, then never meet it? I kept my eyes on him for a moment, then picked up my wine glass and took a drink. Maybe Muslims don't have all the answers, but I don't think anybody does. No, they don't. They only think they do. He spoke not sarcastically or arrogantly, but with almost a hint of sadness. Uncomfortable with the subsequent silence, I glanced toward the river, but saw in the window only the reflection of my face and the back of his head. What if God doesn't even exist? I looked back toward him. Maybe the material world is all there is. Then you have the problem of design. What, that there's no way it could happen by accident? It was a common argument and, frankly, a good one. You're aware of Roger Penrose, he said. Yeah, helped develop black hole theory. Do you know the odds he calculated of a cosmic accident producing this orderly universe rather than chaos? I hadn't read Penrose's calculation, but I had seen similar comments by Hawking, Dyson, and others. I guessed. One in a million? Try one in a hundred billion to the one hundred twenty-third power. Not very good odds. And that's just the macro universe. He omits the design complexity of biological life. He had me there. The more I'd studied cosmology, the more apparent the design in the universe had become. I thought those who promoted the idea of random chance had more of a philosophical axe to grind than science on their side. I reached for a piece of bread, spread butter on it this time, and took a bite. Okay, fine. I agree that there has to be some transcendent being, not just physical existence. And you're great at poking holes in all these other religions, but it seems to me that all religions, including Christianity, are different paths to the same place. I mean, everyone is looking for God. And are you? That interjection caught me by surprise. Am I looking for God? You wouldn't think so, observing my life. I decided to ignore his question. As I was saying, it seems like everyone is looking for God in their own way. That's what I like about the church our friends Dave and Paula attend. They embrace everyone's beliefs and try to help them on their path to God. There's one problem with that thinking, he said. What? There is no path to God. That was the last thing I expected to hear. Chapter 5 The Salad To my right, The waiter lingered with our salads for how long, I don't know. Our pause cued his approach. Maybe he avoided interrupting serious conversations. I guess this one qualified. I wasn't quite sure how I got suckered into a God discussion, but it was more captivating than my college prof pontificating on comparative religion. Mr. Drone, we called him, for his preferred lecture style. The tortellini salad across the table jogged my memory. That was what Mattie had ordered that was so good. Oh, well. I pulled my selection closer and reached for a new fork. Care for some tortellini? My host asked, pointing to his own salad. Before I had a chance to respond, he reached over, grabbed my empty bread plate, scooped half of his portion onto it, and handed it to me. That's too much, I said in polite protest. This place serves enough food for two dinners. I have plenty. He was right about the servings, and I wasn't about to argue. I took the dish and pushed my own salad to the side. Thank you. I took a bite. This is ungodly. He tasted it as well, but didn't respond. I had a couple more bites before getting the conversation back on track. What do you mean there's no path to God? Every religion claims to teach the way to God. Oh, there's a way to God, he said, just not a path. He'd lost me. From the look on my face, he probably knew it. What I mean is this. A path is something you travel down by your own effort to reach a destination. But there's no such path to God. There is nothing you can do to work your way to God. That path doesn't exist. It- Wait a minute. That's what all religion is about, trying to get to God. How can you say otherwise? He took another couple of bites before responding. Did you ever get into trouble as a kid- Are we changing the subject? We'll get back to the other. I wasn't too sure I wanted to talk about me anymore, although, in truth, it was a favorite subject of mine. I don't think this place stays open late enough for all my troublemaking history. He smiled. That bad? Give me a highlight. I reached over to sample my own salad. My mind raced from getting my first spanking, to playing Halloween pranks, to teasing my sister Ellen, to aborting a plan to smoke bomb the high school teacher's lounge, to no point in bringing up the present. I backtracked. When I was four, my mother made these Christmas decorations, miniature drummer boy drums. I don't know what she used them for. Anyway, she covered the sides with green and red crepe paper. Plus, somehow, she'd attached spearmint lifesavers on the sides. He started smiling, probably knowing where this was heading. So she had them in the utility room, on the washer and dryer. And I snuck in there and plucked a lifesaver off one of the drums. Then I crossed through the kitchen, where my mother was, to get out. But a few minutes later, I went back in, saying I forgot something, as I entered the utility room. When I tried it a third time, my I forgot something again wasn't too convincing. I started chuckling to myself. She opened the door, and there I was, stuffing my pockets with as many lifesavers as I could... That was the first spanking I remember. Actually, my dad did it when he got home. He always used to do it. He wasn't too mad, really, but mother was, so he had to. I paused, lost momentarily in my childhood. Once, dad got really mad, though. When? When I was about nine. My sister Shelley must have been five. We'd stopped at a burger place for some ice cream, and Shelley wanted a big vanilla shake. Dad tried to talk her into a small one, but she insisted on a large. So we all got our orders, got back in the car, and drove off. Then Shelley started on her shake. But the thing was so thick that she couldn't use a straw. So she took the plastic top off and tilted it toward her mouth. Except it was barely moving, and she kept tilting it up farther and farther, and the main blob still wasn't moving. So finally I said, come on, Shelly, and reached over and gave the bottom of the cup a whap. When I did that, the whole thing came cascading onto her face. When she opened her eyes, all you could see were these two big brown circles poking out through the white ice cream. He started laughing with me. I continued. She looked like a ghost. I burst out laughing. She burst out crying. And my dad burst out yelling at me. He never used to do that, but this time he did. He slammed on the brakes, got out. "'wiped her off as best he could, "'then bent me over his knee "'and gave me my worst spanking ever. "'He was not happy. "'I wiped my eyes with my napkin. "'I hadn't thought about that in years "'or laughed so hard in a while, either. "'I think that was the last vanilla shake "'I ever saw Shelley get. "'She always ordered chocolate after that. "'We both took a drink of water, "'looked at each other, "'and chuckled a bit more "'as we returned to our salads.' Finally, he got us back to semi-serious conversation. So your dad always handled the spanking? Yeah, mother just screamed at us. But dad didn't spank much. I probably didn't get half a dozen spankings growing up. Why not? I don't know. I thought about that for a second. I don't know. That just wasn't his way of handling things. Usually, he made sure we understood why what we had done was wrong. Then he always made us apologize to the other person, especially to mother. I took another bite of tortellini. He had a sip of wine, then said, It sounds as though your dad had a lot in common with God. That one cut short my next bite en route to my mouth. How so? They both focused on restoring relationships. I wasn't quite getting the connection, meaning, your dad had you admit how you had hurt someone and apologize. He was interested in restoring relationships. I guess that's true. I've never thought about it that way. God is like that, he continued. He's not interested in people trying to perform well enough for him. They can't. He created people to have a relationship with him, to enjoy his love. But humanity rejected God and severed that relationship. His program is putting it back together. He paused, took a bite, then gestured with his fork toward me. Let me ask you this. When Sarah's seven and she does something wrong, how many dishes will she have to wash before she can sit in your lap and have you hug her again? None. How many A's will she have to make in school? That's ridiculous. Why? She won't have to do anything. She's my daughter. Exactly. I looked down and sampled some more of my salad, letting that sink in. Finally, my gaze returned to him. You're saying that we can't do anything to earn God's acceptance? He smiled and reached for the wine bottle. A little more. Sure. He poured me half a glass. My mind was still racing from his last statement, or my summation. He proceeded. Muslims who try to earn their way into paradise, how many daily prayers do they have to perform to be good enough? I don't know. Neither do they. That's the problem. They can never be sure if they've done enough. Enough praying, fasting, giving to the poor, making pilgrimages. They can never know. Ask them, and they'll admit that. Hindus can never know how many hundreds of lifetimes it may take to successfully work out their karma. Buddhists can never know how much effort it will take to reach nirvana. But Christianity is no different, I responded. No one can ever know if he's really been good enough to make it to heaven. Oh, people can know that for certain. The answer is they haven't been. No one is good enough to make it to heaven. No one can ever be good enough, no matter how hard they try. But what about all the people who think that going to church or giving money or being a good person will get them into heaven? Mrs. Willard, my Sunday school teacher, sure thought that would get people in. She was wrong. It won't. This was stretching my concept of Christianity. So you're saying that doing all the right things, like keeping the Ten Commandments, won't get you into heaven. Correct. Then why do them? There's great profit in obeying God. It just won't get you into heaven. For a moment, I didn't know what to say. How can this guy say something so different from what I heard in church growing up? Maybe he realized my predicament because he resumed the conversation. You're a Star Trek fan. I didn't know where he got his information, and I decided to stop asking. I liked The Next Generation. I never got into the follow-ups much. There's an episode where they talk about a rift, a tear in the fabric of space-time. It's a huge problem. The galaxy will be destroyed if they don't repair it. Something tells me we're not gonna start talking about Star Trek. Maybe not, he replied, but it's a great illustration. There is a moral fabric to the universe. Humanity's rebellion against God is a massive rip in that fabric. It's an overthrow of the entire way God designed the universe to operate. Every person's sin tears this moral fabric. It was hard to deny that humanity is pretty screwed up. The evening news proved that. But who's to say that humanity isn't evolving spiritually? Like Dave and Paula say- Maybe we're all moving toward a greater universal harmony. I had to admit, I wasn't too convinced myself, but it was worth considering, momentarily at least. Humanity's separation from God is much more profound than people realize. Just look around. The selfishness, bitterness, hatred, prejudice, exploitation, abuse, wars, all these result from humanity's rebellion against God. Do you think God designed people to operate this way? Some of those things are getting better, I chimed in optimistically. Really? His eyebrows rose. How many people were murdered by their own governments in the last century? Oh, I don't know, I replied, a hundred million or so. And how many killed in wars? Probably about the same. In what century have the most people been killed for their faith? Let me guess, the last one? Right. And in what century do you think there has been more ecological damage, exploitation of the world's poor, rampant immorality? Okay, you've made your point, I said, halting the litany of human ills. There's a rip in the fabric of the universe, he repeated. God stands on one side of the tear. You stand on the other. And there's no way for you to repair it. There's no way at all to the other side. Trying to be good enough is irrelevant. Humanity rejected God, separated itself from him, and can't do anything to reestablish that relationship. Why not? Because only God is big enough to fix the tear. I had a feeling he was going to say that. Chapter 6 The Main Course The problem with places like Milano's is that by the time the main course arrives, you're stuffed. Well, not completely stuffed, but at a point where you wouldn't consider ordering veal fantarella with grilled vegetables. Of course, when the veal comes and you take your first bite, room magically reappears in your belly. I had been stuffed with God talk years ago, and I still felt the need for a good purge. But here I was, 40 minutes into this dinner, and I hadn't reached my fill. I'm not sure why. To be honest, this guy both intrigued and baffled me. There he sat, one minute eating his salmon as if this dinner was the most natural thing in the world, the next saying stuff about God I'm certain I never heard in Sunday school. Do you have something to write on? He took a pen from his coat pocket. I pulled out my wallet and searched through it. Not really, a couple of receipts, a business card, that'll do. I turned it to the blank side and handed it to him. He continued, Who is the best person you can think of? What do you mean? Morally speaking, who is the best? I don't know. I thought for a moment. Living or dead? Either. Mother Teresa, maybe? She had a fairly good reputation. Okay. He drew a short line near the top of the card and put Mother Teresa next to it. Who is the worst? Well, Osama bin Laden turned out pretty bad, but there have been worse. Hitler, Stalin, Pol Pot. Pick one. Hitler. He marked a line near the bottom and wrote Hitler next to it. Turning the card around toward me, he offered me the pen. I took it from him. Now, Mother Teresa is at the top. Hitler is at the bottom. Where do you think you fall on this scale? The busboy appeared behind my companion and filled his water glass. I let the conversation pause while he came around and filled mine. He left and I returned to the question at hand. How can anyone answer that? If you put yourself closer to Mother Teresa, you look vain. If you put yourself closer to Hitler, I let that speak for itself. So where do you think? He asked, unmoved by my dilemma. I raised the pen. Here. I drew a mark above the middle, somewhat closer to Mother Teresa. So what do I win? Nothing. But I'll tell you how you stack up in God's eyes. Okay. At least that's what I said. I wasn't really sure I wanted to hear my score. Actually, this business card doesn't constitute the entire scale. Hitler is here, he pointed at the bottom. You say you are here, and Mother Teresa is here. But to get a feel for how high God's actual standard is, he stood the card on its end. Imagine that we went to Chicago and put this card at the base of the Sears Tower. God's moral standard is the top of the tower, over 100 stories up. Are you saying that to God Mother Teresa and Hitler are essentially the same? Oh, no. Hitler was horribly evil. Mother Teresa did very much good. It's not the same. But the point is this. Mother Teresa, in her own goodness, is no closer to bridging the gap to God than Hitler is. They're both sinners. And both, on their own merits, are separated from God. I thought about that for a few seconds before responding. So you're saying that no one can make it. Not on their own merit. No one is even close. God's standard is perfection, and you wouldn't want it any other way. I was still thinking about the implications of his prior statement. This new one took a second to register. I'm sorry, what? What do you mean, I wouldn't want it any other way? You wouldn't want the universe run by someone who wasn't perfectly holy and perfectly just. Why not? Perfect holiness is the last thing I need to deal with. Because it would offend your God-given sense of justice. Would you want a universe where crime went unpunished? Where if someone harmed Sarah, there'd be no justice? Where evil reigned unopposed? God has to punish sin, because if he doesn't, he lets all creation be sabotaged. How would it have been if, after the Holocaust, God had said to Hitler, That's okay, Adolf, we all make mistakes, don't worry about it. But everyone isn't Hitler. No, but everyone is a rebel against God. It doesn't take horrific outward acts. For the universe, humanity's rebellion is more like cancer than like a heart attack. It isn't mass murder that destroys the world. It's selfishness, resentment, envy, pride, all the daily sins of the heart. God has to deal with the cancer. But we've all felt those things We're human. Yes, yes. I waited for more, but he returned to his salmon. The import of what he had said slowly sank in. It just doesn't seem right that God sees everyone the same way. Some people are worse than others, and God will judge them all rightly. But that's the point. Everyone is already under God's judgment because everyone has violated his moral law. On what basis are you going to stand before a perfectly holy God and say that you've been good enough? I picked up my fork to stab another piece of veal, then put it down again and reached for some water. Suddenly the conversation unsettled me. You read Lord of the Flies, he resumed, about the shipwrecked English boys who created their own society and ended up brutalizing each other? Yeah. Why did they come to accept such brutality as normal? They were cut off from civilization. I suppose they gradually forgot what was right. At least it got all mixed up for them. He nodded. It did. They lacked a compass to guide their behavior. Humanity is the same way. People are cut off from God, so they've lost a sense of how abhorrent sin really is. They live in a sinful world and it almost seems normal. But to God, it is grotesque. God is holy and just in an absolute sense. Humanity doesn't have any point of comparison with that. That's why people continually try to water down God's holiness, the way Islam does. My ears perked up at that one. Like Islam? If there's one thing Muslims emphasize, it's God's justice and his punishment of wickedness. That's what they claim. But ask them what happens on the judgment day. They say that if you've done enough good deeds, Allah will overlook your bad ones and you'll get into paradise. So? So Allah has to deny perfect justice in order to be merciful. There's no penalty for wrongdoing if you've done enough good things to offset it. But true justice doesn't work that way, not even on earth. If someone is convicted of fraud, the judge doesn't say, well, he was a kind little league coach, that offsets it. In Islam... Allah is not perfectly just, because if He were, people would have to pay the penalty for every sin, and no one would get into paradise. That's what perfect justice is. I pushed the vegetables around on my neglected plate. But I thought God is forgiving. You're implying that because of justice, God can't forgive. God is forgiving. God wants to forgive people more than anything in the world, to restore them to Himself. What I'm saying is that God's desire to forgive doesn't negate his perfect justice. Someone has to pay the penalty for sins. God's justice demands it. This seemed like a catch-22 of the worst kind. I reached for a piece of bread mostly to buy time to think. He finished off his salmon, apparently content to let me formulate my next question. So what has to happen to get us back to God? God had two options. He could let people pay for their own sins, resulting in humanity being separated from him forever. That's not a good one. What was the other option? Or God could pay the penalty himself. How? He's God. The creator is greater than the creation. For the creator to take the penalty of death himself instead of those he created satisfies perfect justice. Why would God do that? He reached for his water. Let me ask you something. Imagine that Sarah is 17, and she falls in with a bad crowd and gets hooked on heroin. That's a little bleak, don't you think? Just hypothetically. Now, if while on drugs, she murdered someone and was sentenced to death, would you take her penalty if you could? That was a hard one. Needless to say, I hadn't pondered it before. But I'm sure I would. Why? Because I love her. And she'd have the rest of her life, and I'd want to give her the chance to make it a good one. He leaned toward me, moved his plate forward, and rested his forearms against the table. Don't you think God loves you at least as much as you love Sarah? I shifted back in my chair, but my eyes never left his. Maybe, I really don't know. He leaned back himself. I heard about two boys in fifth grade. One of them made straight A's, the other barely passed every year. Despite their different grades, they were best friends, had been since kindergarten. Near the end of the school year, they had a big math test. The first boy sailed through it. The second, who needed to make a C to pass, struggled. After class, the first asked the second how he did. I don't think I made it, he said. That day at recess, while everyone played outside, the first boy sneaked back into the classroom, shuffled through the stacks of tests, and found there two. He erased his name on his and wrote his friend's name there, and then wrote his name on his friend's. I waited for a second, but he seemed to be finished. That's all? What else were you expecting? Well, the story's not over. When the teacher returned and graded the papers, she would have known what he did. No, the story ends there. What does it tell you? That the first kid was willing to exchange his grades so that his friend could pass. Yes, and more than that. He ran his hand across his chin. What would have happened if the second kid had failed? He would have been held back the next year, probably. And then, they couldn't have gone to school together anymore. He paused for a moment, then spoke a little more softly. God longs to have you with him. That's why he created you. But your sin separates you from him. It has to if God is just. You have to be innocent before God. So to get you back, God took your sin upon himself, and he died to pay for it. That satisfies his justice. In exchange, he offers you a not guilty verdict. He offers it as a free gift. I wasn't entirely sure about this alleged gift, which sounded too good to be true, but I had to ask the logical question. What do you have to do to get it? Just receive it. That's all. You don't have to do anything for it. No. And how do you receive it? Just trust him. That's what all relationships are built on. Trust. You reestablish a relationship with God by trusting that he died to pay for your sins. Believe that he will forgive your sins and give you eternal life. That's why he died for you. He wants you back. All you have to do is accept the gift. I wanted to look away, but my eyes seemed frozen. I wasn't convinced that God loved me all that much, and I sure didn't know if I wanted him. And this last statement confused me. I don't get it. The Bible says that Jesus died on the cross, not God. Nick, he replied, I am God. Chapter 7, The Dessert Exclusions Excuse me a minute, would you? I stood and headed toward the men's room. Passing the lattice, I hooked a right and entered the bathroom. I took care of business, stepped to the sink, and looked at myself in the mirror. Now what? It's not every day that someone tells you he's God. Maybe if you worked in a psych ward, I don't know. This guy is either a nut or a really good actor. Or I dismissed the last possibility. But why would anyone want to put on this show? What would be the point? To bamboozle me into the kingdom? Who would do that? Okay, I can think of a few televangelists who might, but this guy doesn't come off that way. I can't refute anything he's said. I don't necessarily agree with it all, but it's not off the wall. Except that last statement. I splashed my face with water, dried off, and headed back toward the table, unsure what to do. I considered taking a right at the lattice and going straight for the parking lot, but something stopped me. I couldn't help wanting to know more about this guy who claimed to be- I returned to the table. Our plates had been replaced by dessert menus. The waiter recommends the strawberry amaretto cake. He looked over his menu. I stared at him, waiting for him to put it down and look up at me. He finally did. Prove it. Prove that you're God. What would convince you? Good question. What could anyone possibly do to convince you of that? You couldn't even turn wine into water earlier. That's your assumption. What? Are you saying you could have but just chose not to? And what if I had changed it? Well, it might have gotten my attention. And then what? Another good question. It's not like he didn't have my attention sufficiently. The waiter interrupted with a request for dessert selections. I motioned across the table and glanced at the menu. I couldn't concentrate. My host ordered the cake. And for you, sir, the tiramisu, an old standby. I watched him collect the menus and walk off. My host resumed the conversation. You're having a hard time believing that God would become a man. (laughs) Well, I half-chuckled, half-snorted. Wouldn't you? Maybe. It depends on what I expected from God. I don't expect him to look as if he just finished the day at Merrill Lynch. He laughed gently. No, I wouldn't either, I suppose. I leaned back and folded my arms. And to be honest, I really don't believe that God asks people just to take a blind leap of faith about him. You're right. He doesn't. That's what the world's religions do. What's the difference between them and what you're saying? About 180 degrees. In this case... God gives proof before he expects faith. But the world's religions have no evidence for their claims. Various forms of Hinduism count over 300 million gods. What proof do they have of their existence? None as far as I'm concerned. He motioned his index finger toward me. That's why you're not a Hindu. You see no reason to believe it. What evidence can Buddhists offer that ultimate reality is an unknowable void called nirvana? Who can demonstrate to you that God actually spoke to Muhammad? Or to Joseph Smith of the Mormons? Or, but Jesus is just the same. What evidence is there that Jesus was God? I noticed that my elbows had migrated onto the table. Well, for one thing, that's exactly what God said would happen. When did he say that? He took a drink of water before continuing. You've read some of the prophets. I never paid much attention to that Nostradamus stuff. His brow furrowed. The real ones, he insisted. I had, in fact, read some of the Hebrew prophets. Elizabeth, my girlfriend back at NIU, had successfully goaded me into attending a dorm Bible study that covered them. They said the Messiah would come, I answered. I don't think they ever said anything about his being God. You focused more on Elizabeth at that study than on the Bible. I suggest you reread Isaiah, Daniel, and Micah. How did you know I was there? I looked intently at him for several moments. He kept his eyes on mine, but I couldn't read his expression. I ignored his last comment. I know what they wrote. They said the Messiah would be born of a virgin, born in Bethlehem. They described his crucifixion, etc., etc. That's a pretty good tip-off, don't you think? Micah predicting seven centuries in advance the village where the Messiah would be born? David describing in detail death by crucifixion, centuries before the Romans invented the practice. Daniel telling the year of the Messiah's death 500 years ahead of time. Really? I was genuinely surprised. What year? Calculating by the Jewish calendar, A.D. 33. I wasn't sure what to say to that. I emptied my wine glass. He continued, As for saying the Messiah would be God himself, The prophets said that he would be called Mighty God, Eternal Father, that he would be from days of eternity, that he would be worshipped. That did sound eerily divine, but I wasn't about to admit it. Still, that doesn't mean Jesus was God. Did you see that two-night miniseries they did on Jesus? I know the one you're talking about. And that show Peter Jennings did a while back on the historical Jesus? Not particularly accurate. You say that, but how do we know? It portrayed Jesus as someone who never claimed to be the Messiah, much less God. It said he struggled with his identity, got swept up in events, and was killed as a political threat. He answered matter-of-factly, I forgave sins on my own authority, healed people, raised people from the dead, exercised power over nature, said I existed before Abraham, claimed to be one with the Father said I was the giver of eternal life and accepted worship. Who does that sound like to you? Just because you claimed to be God doesn't mean that you are. No, but it does mean that I wasn't just a good religious teacher. Either I told the truth about who I am, or I lied, or I was insane. Those are the only real options. Good religious teachers don't claim to be God. He looked off across the room, not seeming to focus on anything in particular. He shook his head almost imperceptibly, then looked back at me. People distort the truth because they reject the final proof I've already given. What's that? That I rose from the dead. At that moment, the waiter, easily within earshot of our last exchange, appeared with our desserts. I avoided his eyes as he served them, refilled our water, and then departed, I spoke first. You're sitting here, alive, across the table from me. If you say you were once dead, it's pretty hard for me to prove otherwise. He took a bite of a strawberry. Good point. Why don't we deal with the actual facts? What do you know about me, historically? His use of the first person still disconcerted me, but I could go for this topic. I plunged in. From secular histories, we know Jesus was an actual person. Okay. We know he was a teacher who had a large following. He nodded. We know the Romans executed him, I continued. Which brings us to the event in question. What happened then? Well, his disciples claimed that he was raised from the dead, but of course they would claim that. Really? Is that what they expected to happen? I searched through my Sunday school data bank. Not that I recall, I admitted despite the fact that I told them repeatedly it would. True. Did they believe it at first, when the women told them about it? No. When did they believe? According to their accounts, when they actually saw Jesus. So when these men wrote accounts of my life, they described themselves as failing to believe beforehand, failing to believe afterward, and only believing after they were hit in the face with the evidence. And even then... They stayed in hiding, afraid of the authorities. Is that the way you'd portray yourself if you wanted people to follow you in a cause? It's possible, I answered. Improbable, perhaps, but possible. For what purpose? He lifted a fork to his cake. So they could be impoverished, persecuted, and finally martyred? Lots of people have died for believing something false. Yes, for a false philosophy or a false religious belief. But this is different. We're talking about people who willingly died for their belief in a historical event. They were there. They saw whether it happened. They all said it happened, even though saying so brought them nothing but suffering and death. People don't die for something they know is a lie, especially when it brings them no benefit. High school debate had taught me a thing or two about argumentation, like when to drop a losing point. I sampled my tiramisu and thought a moment. Maybe they thought Jesus had died when he really hadn't. How often do you think the Romans let people who hadn't yet died down off crosses? Probably not too often. So you're implying the Romans let someone down, so badly injured as to be left for dead. Then two days later, my recovery was so miraculous that the disciples thought I was God himself? Okay, it's unlikely, I replied, but the disciples did have something to gain from claiming Jesus had been resurrected. Go on. They had status to gain as those who began a new religious movement. His answer surprised me. You're right. They did have that status. He leaned forward and rested his fork on his dessert plate. You're saying that the men who spread the word about me, who taught people to love one another— who told slave owners in a brutal society to treat their slaves well, who told husbands to love their wives at a time when women were treated as chattel, who told people to honor and obey the government that was martyring them, who launched the greatest force for good that the world has known, that they did all this based on something they knew to be false. "'It hasn't all been good,' I retorted. "'What about the Crusades?' or the Salem Witch Trials, or the Spanish Inquisition? What about Europe's wars of religion between the Protestants and the Catholics, or the fighting in Northern Ireland? Your own people are always at each other's throats. His countenance changed noticeably, and he let out an audible sigh. That's true. He remained silent for a few moments, looking at the table. It makes me very sad. The change in him disarmed me taking me off the defensive and, frankly, off the offensive as well. I sat looking at him, then asked honestly, why has Christianity been such a mixed bag? He folded his hands on the table. Several reasons. Most of the people who've done these things didn't really know me. They may have seemed outwardly religious, but they weren't mine. They never really put their trust in me. Pardon me for saying so, but- That seems a little convenient for you. Not really. More than anything, I wanted to have a relationship with them. But they wouldn't. Still, I countered, you can't claim that no real Christians have perpetrated any of these things. No, I can't. That's the tragedy of it. It almost seems the norm. He unfolded his hands and sat back. It isn't. But it's been too frequent. Why? because they never learned to live as the new people they were. I'm not sure what you mean. When people put their trust in me and receive eternal life, they get more than forgiveness. Otherwise, heaven would be populated with a bunch of forgiven sinners still running from God. God won't have that. So what does he do about it? He does more than forgive them. He changes them on the inside. Their heart, their human spirit, is actually made new. In the depths of their being, they no longer run from God. They are joined to him. They no longer want to disobey God. They want to do what he says is good. But they don't do it, I objected. Often they do, but not always. A new heart gets you in the game. Then you have to let me be your instructor. I teach you how to live Based on what's been made new on the inside. Some people don't let me do that. They'd rather do it their way. So they remain judgmental, or selfish, or fearful. There's no joy in that. This sounds almost new-agey, like something Dave and Paula would say. Maybe, he answered, but it's not. Tell me, you've talked to your two friends enough. What do you think they're after? connection with the divine i suppose except they believe they already are divine in a sense it's a little confusing he nodded as he finished a bite of cake how do they try to connect with god more enlightenment i replied more as a question than as a statement working on letting go of misguided desires and embracing my new age vocabulary was failing me embracing something i'm not sure what They're trying to achieve through a lot of effort the very thing I offer for free. What's that? When someone receives me, God forgives them. He makes them new on the inside, and, he paused momentarily, he comes to live in them. I had been downing my tiramisu during his explanation, but this last statement caused me to halt an approaching bite. He what? He comes to live in them. That's as close to God as you can get. And unlike people trying to manufacture the connection on their own, it's the real thing. I wasn't sure that sounded like a great deal. The last thing I need is God looking over my shoulder every minute. He's already looking over your shoulder every minute. What you need is him living in you every minute. What for? Well, for one, how else are you ever going to love your daughter unconditionally? to say nothing of Maddie. You want to love Mattie better, but you don't know how. And even if you did know, you don't have the ability. Only God loves that way. He wants to do it through you. He was right. Despite my best intentions, things weren't going all that well with Maddie. I constantly found myself getting irritated with her, and she with me. I was afraid Nick the Romancer had gone into hibernation. I picked up my fork, took a bite of tiramisu, and finally spoke. I've never heard all this before. I know. My disciples knew it, and lived it, and passed it on. But the message got distorted along the way. Church hierarchies, power structures, they crowded it out. People wanted to reduce God to a set of rules. But he's not about rules, any more than marriage is about rules. Then what's he about? joining people to himself. He designed them to be joined to him, like man and woman are made to be united. People were meant to have God's very life in them. Without that, they're like a new SUV with no engine. They may look good, but they don't work. They're missing the most important part. I leaned back to take in what he'd said. If this is what Christianity is all about, why don't they say it? because most haven't understood. Some have, though. It's never been hidden. Read the last third of John's Gospel. It's all there. Mr. McIntosh knew it. My seventh grade science teacher always liked him. Believe it or not, he liked you, too. All the times he sent me to detention? He smiled. You didn't give him much choice, did you? No, I smiled back. I suppose I didn't. I took another bite of my dessert, as did he. We sat silently for a couple of minutes as I cleaned my plate. I finally broke the silence. So, where do we go from here? That's a good question, he said. Where do you want to go? I wasn't sure. Chapter 8 The Coffee Why doesn't God just show himself to people? The waiter had walked off with our dessert plates. I had resisted the urge to scrape mine with a fork, as I usually did at home. Waiting for coffee, I decided it was now or never to get some of my remaining questions about God and life answered. This one seemed like a decent place to start. Jesus wiped his mouth with his napkin and returned it to his lap. What would you have me do? I don't know. Appear to everyone personally. He chuckled, and seeing the irony in my statement, I couldn't help but join him momentarily. No, seriously, I said, most people don't get a dinner invitation. I did appear to humanity. I became one of you. That's about as personal as it gets. But that was two thousand years ago. It doesn't matter. Most people didn't believe then either. You don't have to see with your eyes to believe. I rested an elbow on the back of my chair. At least God could perform some kind of sign that would show he exists. I did that, too. They still didn't believe. My father did that at Mount Sinai with the Jews. They turned away from him within six weeks. The waiter appeared with our coffee orders. A cappuccino for me, regular coffee for him. He used a little cream, no sugar. It's not a matter of further visual evidence, he continued. People have all the evidence they need. It's a matter of the heart. Do they want to trust God and humbly receive the gift he offers? Or do they insist on proving themselves good enough and doing it their own way? Somehow, his statements about people seem to have a very personal application. I wanted to keep the conversation on a more impersonal level. But how can you say people have all the evidence they need? They have creation to tell them that God exists. Humanity knows more than ever before how intricately designed and finely tuned creation is. People have me to tell them what God is like. That's one reason I came, to reveal the Father. They have my resurrection to prove I'm God. They have the Bible as God's message to them. I took my first sip of cappuccino, licking the foam off my lips as he drank some coffee. My religion professor said so many copying errors were made over the years that we don't really know what the original Bible said. He shook his head slightly as he put his cup down. He doesn't do much research, does he? As I said before, he would find the opposite is true. It's been painstakingly copied. The number of places where you have a question of any consequence is minuscule. I had to admit, I hadn't done the research either. I forged ahead. But what about all the contradictions? Like what? I don't know, like, I don't know specifics. I just know there are supposed to be contradictions. He smiled. I'll give you one. One gospel account says I healed two blind men outside of Jericho. Another says I healed one. There you go. Okay. The other day when you told Les that you and Matty had gone to a movie, had the two of you gone alone? No, Mattie's friend Jessica came with us. Why did you leave that fact out? It wasn't relevant to the story I was telling. True. I expected more, but he stopped there. Are you saying the Bible's historical accounts are true? Your own archaeologists are telling you that. You should have renewed your subscription to U.S. News and World Report. Check out a cover story on it. But I can't believe that God really created the universe in six days, or that the Earth is only 6,000 years old. That's preposterous. Who's asking you to believe that? All those fundamentalists. They added up all the genealogies in Genesis and said that the earth was created 6,000 years ago. He took another sip of coffee. Genesis presents a flow of history. It says that God created the universe in an orderly fashion, starting with light itself. He made the earth, then gave it design. Forming continents out of the oceans, creating plant life, creating lower forms of animal life, creating higher forms of animal life, creating humanity in his image. Now, is there anything in that sequence that your scientists would disagree with? Well, they wouldn't agree with the in God's image part. No, that's their problem. They don't want to acknowledge that they're created in God's image because that would make them accountable to a creator. They don't want that. But what about all the miracles? Like Joshua marching around Jericho seven days than the walls falling. Or David plunking Goliath in the middle of the forehead? Or God parting the Red Sea? Are you implying that the creator of the universe can't perform miracles? You wouldn't even change my wine back into water. I was unable to restrain a slight smirk. He returned to the miracles. I'll grant you, David and Goliath would be hard to verify outside the Bible. But they've already discovered the ruins of Jericho. The city was built just as the Bible describes it and the walls fell in exactly the manner described, too. You're kidding. No. As for the Red Sea, give your archaeologists a couple of decades. He winked. But that's not the real issue, is it? He put down his coffee and leaned forward. Remember how, when you were six, you couldn't believe a two-wheeled bike would stay upright under you until you tried it and saw that it would? Sure. If you actually open up the Bible... And ask God to speak to you, Nick. You'll see that he will. We looked into one another's eyes a moment. I finally spoke again. Not everyone has access to a Bible. No, he acknowledged. Not everyone does. So what does God do about them? The Father asks people to respond to the revelation they've been given. That may only be creation and their conscience. That's what he holds them accountable for but they never get to hear about you. If anyone is really willing to do what God asks, he will reveal himself to them. I let out a disbelieving snort. Well, if they don't have a Bible, God can use whatever means he wishes. Usually, he sends people. Sometimes, in areas where the gospel is restricted, like in Muslim countries, I reveal myself in dreams. But it seems like people in some places have a huge advantage— They can hear about you all the time, yes, and they ignore the message. As I said, God reveals himself to anyone willing to trust him. He provides his forgiveness to all who will accept it. And what about people who think they're good enough, like Mrs. Willard? They will stand before God on their own merit. He lifted his cup to his lips once more, then returned it to the table. That's not a position you want to be in. It's like a father who offers a billion-dollar inheritance to his son, but the son says to him, not until I've proved myself worthy. It seems noble to try to be good enough, but in reality, it's just prideful obstinacy. The son wants the inheritance on his own terms. He doesn't want to accept it as a gift, but God offers it only as a gift. You can't earn it. No one can. I took a long sip of my cappuccino, which had cooled some. This time I wiped off the foam with my napkin and placed it on the table instead of in my lap. I looked back up at him. Is there a hell? Yes, he answered quietly. For those who choose to stay separated from God, there is existence. It's not an existence you want. I sat silently for a moment. What's it like? If you remove all sources of good from life as you know it, that's what it's like. God is the source of all good. For those who choose separation from him, there is no good. He paused. You can't even comprehend how bad that would be. Why does he send people there? The Father offers forgiveness to anyone willing to receive him. People choose continued separation from God. He respects what they choose. But why doesn't he just make everyone go to heaven? They'd be happier there. Love doesn't force relationship, he said in a tone even softer than before. If you had somehow forced Matty to marry you, it wouldn't have been love. God created people to be able to choose freely. He honors their choices. I thought about that for a moment. Somehow it just doesn't seem right. You live in a world turned upside down by humanity's rebellion. Sometimes things don't make sense. When you don't let Sarah play near the street, it doesn't make sense to her. One day it will. God loves with a love greater than you can know. He doesn't want anyone separated from him. But some will be. One day, that will make sense. I don't find that answer entirely satisfying. I know, he replied that's okay. I took another drink and gathered my thoughts. I suppose you'll say that God allowing suffering is the same kind of thing. What do you think? Based on what you've said, humanity suffers because it separated itself from God. Yes. So why doesn't he just make things right, right now? Why wait for some day in the future? He drank some coffee. That's difficult to answer, because you can't see things from God's perspective right now but there is a purpose to the present time, and one day, everything will be made right. That doesn't seem quite fair, for God to work out his plan while we suffer. You're forgetting something. God didn't leave you to suffer alone. He suffered more than anyone. I looked down at my cappuccino for a few moments. The foam had flattened out, and it was only lukewarm. I took a couple of sips, lost in my thoughts. Finally, he spoke you're angry about your dad. God took him away when I was sixteen, I'd say that's worth being mad about. Or was that just part of God's plan? My voice was rising and I glanced around to see if anyone had overheard me. Oh, who cares? I turned back to Jesus. He sat silently, his eyes held on mine. You loved your dad very much. I glanced back at my cup and eventually spoke toward it. We used to do a lot together. Go fishing, to cub games black hawk games he had played some semi-pro hockey for a while and he coached all my hockey teams after mother divorced him and we moved across town he stopped coaching me i probably could have played college you still saw him though i figured that was a statement not a question i answered anyway yeah every other weekend but it wasn't the same he missed you too that was definitely a statement i finally looked up i know you don't know how broken-hearted he was about you. It almost killed him to lose you. Well, he didn't live much longer anyway, did he? I didn't even bother trying to hide my anger this time. No, he spoke quietly. He didn't. I drank the last of my cappuccino. This won't seem true to you, he said, but I was heartbroken for both of you. I put my cup down and stared across the table not feeling anger so much as lifelessness. You're right, that doesn't seem true. We sat in silence. So, I finally said, you never answered my question. Was my parents' divorce and my dad's death part of God's plan? He took a moment to reply. You know the story of the prodigal son? Yeah. Great, another Sunday school lesson. What did it take for the son to return to the father who loved him? I answered in a monotone, listless voice. For life to get really bad in the pigpen, so what? Sometimes, it takes deep hurts for people to feel their need for God. And that's God's plan? That's what God is willing to use in a broken world. Your dad's pain drove him to me. And without that wound in your heart, Nick, you wouldn't be sitting here talking with me either. I leaned back folded my arms and sighed. I wish I could say it all makes sense now. I looked aside momentarily, then back at him. I wish I could say that. Chapter 9 The Bill The restaurant had emptied. I glanced around to where the table of six had laughed the evening away. It was reset for tomorrow's lunch. The young couple had long since left, Even a middle-aged pair in the corner who had entered during our entree had departed. Have we been talking that long? The place had the eerie quiet that comes when your party closes down a restaurant for the night. I could hear the clink of someone sorting utensils. Our waiter approached our table. Another cappuccino, sir, he asked me. No, this was fine. He looked toward Jesus. And you, sir, more coffee? No, thank you. We're ready for the bill. Yes, sir. My eyes followed as he stepped toward the front of the restaurant. Turning back to the table, I saw Jesus loosening his tie for the first time. Even I don't like these things, he said. God doesn't like neckties. Note that for future reference. The waiter reappeared with a black leather bill holder and placed it on the table between us. He then turned to Jesus, held out a blank piece of paper and a pen, and in a hushed voice said, Can I have your autograph, sir, just in case? Jesus smiled and took the pen and paper. Of course. He wrote more than his name, I couldn't tell what, and handed it back to the waiter. I wonder how much that'll go for on eBay. Thank you very much, sir. Thank you, Eduardo, he replied. Their eyes stayed on one another as they held the paper between them. Then Eduardo took it, paused, and walked away. For the first time since the meal began, I regarded my host. His features remained the same. The dark hair, the olive complexion, the almost black eyes, the toned muscles. But somehow his look had changed. He seemed, at the same time, softer and yet more authoritative. I wasn't entirely comfortable with him, yet I was strangely drawn to him. Jesus turned back to me. I like Eduardo. He's a humble man. The longer we'd talked, the more questions had popped into my mind. What was the universe like before the Big Bang? Is there intelligent life on other planets? What really happened to the dinosaurs? But with the bill on the table, one question overshadowed the others. You keep telling me that God offers me this free gift, eternal life. So what's heaven like? He smiled as if I'd asked about his hometown. Heaven is a cool place. Humanity's senses have been so dulled by living in this broken world, you wouldn't believe all the sights, sounds, smells, colors you've never seen, music you've never heard, lots of activity, yet overwhelming peacefulness. Remember how you felt when you stood at the Grand Canyon, too awestruck to take it all in? Yeah, heaven is like that, only infinitely more. I feel stupid asking this, but Are the streets really made of gold? He laughed. Describing heaven isn't exactly easy. It's like explaining snow to a tribal native from the Amazon. He doesn't have a point of reference for it. What's written in the Bible is true, but in a way greater than you can imagine. And you're saying I don't have to do anything to get there. You have to receive the gift of eternal life, he answered. You can't trust in your own goodness. You have to put your faith in me. He shifted to the side and took a long drink of water, then put the glass down. But you're confusing heaven and eternal life. My mind was still partly on what heaven might look like, so I didn't quite take in his last statement. What? I'm sorry? You're confusing heaven and eternal life. I thought they were the same thing. No. I'm not following you. Eternal life isn't a place, he responded, and it's not primarily length of existence. I am eternal life. The Father is eternal life. I'm not sure I'm getting what you're saying. Just as God is the source of all physical life, he is also the source of all spiritual life. Think of it this way. God created your body to need food, air, and water. What happens when you remove those things? You die. The same holds true for your spirit. God created your spirit to be joined with him. Without him, it's dead. It has no life. God is spirit and he is life. The only way for you to have eternal life is to have him. I still wasn't sure I was connecting all the dots. So when you say God offers eternal life, he is offering you himself. God comes to live within you forever. When you have me, you have life itself, with a capital L. I leaned back and thought that over for a moment. So what is heaven? Heaven is simply a place where I am. But people don't go to heaven until they die. True but you can have eternal life right now. I must have had a confused look on my face again. Eternal life isn't something that starts when you die, he continued. It's something that starts the minute you receive me. When you put your trust in me, you are not only completely forgiven, but I also join myself to your spirit. I come to live within you. You, sitting right there. The Holy Spirit, if you wish. He and the Father and I are one. You know, I never really understood that whole trinity thing, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. He smiled. Join the crowd. You aren't meant to understand it. Are you saying I'm incapable of understanding it? Yes. I wasn't sure how to respond. God wouldn't be much of a god, he said, if you could fully understand his nature. Humanity still hasn't figured out most of creation, The creator is far greater than that. The significance of what he'd been saying was slowly dawning on me. I didn't fully comprehend it, but I got the gist of it. I just wasn't sure about the implications. I'm still not entirely comfortable with God coming to live in me. I like the forgiveness part, but this other is the best part. You need someone to love you and accept you and want to be with you, even when you feel bad about yourself. Someone who will always be with you. Everyone needs that. God made you that way. Sarah wants to be around me, I half-joked. Wait till she's fifteen. That seems ages away. And, he said, to tell you the truth, you need someone to put some adventure back in your life. Remember the kid who used to go dirt biking on Highback Ridge? I felt a spark of energy at the mention of the place. Several times I almost didn't make it off there. I know. A smile edged onto his face. You were quite a daredevil. He leaned forward, resting his forearms on the table. You're bored, Nick. You were made for more than this. You're worried about God stealing your fun, but you've got it backward. You're like a kid who doesn't want to leave for Disney World because he's having fun making mud pies by the curb. He doesn't realize that what's being offered is so much better. There's no adventure like being joined to the creation. Chapter 10, Home We walked toward the front of the restaurant, past the lattice. Funny, I almost bolted out this way a while ago. Now, I don't even want to leave. I fell a pace or two behind, lost in my thoughts. Did I really just have dinner with- Why me? Does he do this all the time? What am I going to tell Maddie? When I wake up tomorrow, what do I do now? I looked up and watched as Jesus conversed briefly with Carlo, who'd been sweeping the foyer. They hugged before Carlo opened the door for him. I followed. We paused under the awning. You and Carlo act like old friends. We are. How long have you been coming to Milano's? This is my first time. He took a step toward my car. We walked in silence across the parking lot. I should have guessed he would know which car was mine, but I wasn't yet accustomed to being with someone who knew everything. We stopped at the Explorer. Which car is yours? I was curious to know which one God preferred. Oh, I didn't drive. I let that one hang. It felt a little uncomfortable at my car. How do you say goodbye to Jesus? He didn't seem uneasy, though. Thanks for dinner, I finally said. Suddenly an earlier question popped back into my mind. You never told me who sent the invitation. He chuckled a little, but didn't respond. I suppose this was your idea from the start. Actually, it was yours, Nick. Do you remember when your dad left and you asked God to come and tell you why? Not really. Well, I remembered. I've been planning this dinner for a long time. I wasn't sure what to say. I fumbled in my pocket for my keys, pulled them out, and unlocked the car. I wanted to tell him how glad I was that I'd stayed, and how the evening had turned out so differently than I'd expected. He knew, I suppose, but I wanted to say it anyway. All that came out, though, was, Will we get together for dinner again? He smiled gently. That's up to you. I'm not sure what that means. Yes, you are. Hand me your other business card. I pulled out my billfold and gave him my last one. He pulled his pen out of his coat pocket, wrote something on the back of the card, then slid it inside my shirt pocket. That'll tell you how to reach me. He grasped the door handle and opened it. Maddie's already asleep. You'd better get home. I still had a thousand questions, but he was right. I climbed in the car, turned the key, and rolled my window down. Probably sensing my uncertainty, he initiated the farewell. I'm glad you showed up, Nick. I've enjoyed our time. I have too. Remember, I'm for you. Maddie is too. She just hasn't learned to show it very well yet. Give her time. Love her. I will. Kiss Sarah for me. I will. I reached out my right hand to him. He took it and shook it firmly. I couldn't help glancing at the scar on his wrist once more. Reluctantly, I pulled my hand back and put the explorer in reverse. Goodbye, I said. Until next time, he replied. I backed out, then started across the parking lot. Looking through the rearview mirror, I waved, but he was gone. The drive home from Milano's takes about 20 minutes. It seemed to take two My mind traveled a thousand times faster than the wheels did. I pulled into the driveway, cutting my lights early so as not to wake anyone. I killed the engine, and as I reached for my coat, remembered my business card that Jesus had written on. I slid it out of my pocket and turned it over. Revelation 3.20 was all it said. Revelation 3.20. A Bible verse? The book of Revelation? I got out of the car and quietly shut the door. The house was silent as I locked everything up. Maddie had left a single lamp on for me in the living room. Gretel raised her head as I passed by the kitchen. I stopped and gave her a pat. Sorry you didn't get your walk tonight, girl, I whispered. She put her head back down, resuming her sleep. I hope Maddie remembered to feed her. I tiptoed up the stairs and peeked into Sarah's room. Sound asleep. I crept to the crib and gave her a goodnight kiss. Her breathing altered slightly, then returned to its normal rhythm. I turned around and walked down the hall to our bedroom. I'm not sure what I'm getting myself into here. Reaching across the bed, I closed a novel Maddie had fallen asleep reading. Hi, I whispered. I'm home. Maddie roused slightly, groaned a little, then cracked her eyes. Oh, honey, she mumbled. I'm really sorry about tonight, Maddie. I know, it's okay. Okay. Let's talk about it in the morning. Okay. I kissed her and pulled the covers up to her head. I'll be here shortly. Okay, she said in a slight daze as she rolled over to sleep. I went to the study where I could undress without disturbing her. I found a hanger for my suit pants in the closet. Then I decided to look for something else. I crossed the room, closed the door, and returned to the closet, quietly pulling out boxes of books that we didn't have space to put on our bookshelves. I emptied three boxes, but no luck. It's got to be here somewhere. Piles of books littered the floor as I started my fourth box. I am making a total mess. Then, pay dirt. My old Bible. I hadn't opened it since college. I'm surprised I even kept this thing. I turned to the back where Revelation was- then glanced again at my business card three twenty. I turned to chapter three. Verse twenty was on the next page. It was a quote from Jesus. Here I am, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and will dine with him, and he with me.